Why is it that every time I bring up my favorite movie or song, y'all call my shit corny? You act like I don't have no taste and no flavor. I'm a Luddite or some bullshit like that. What kind of particular shit is that? It's the shit I like. That's what I like. That's my type of shit. You know, don't you know y'all just say something nice? Showtime. Welcome to the Say Something Nice podcast, your home for in-depth news discussions, reviews, and deep dives into movies, television shows, and music, with a special emphasis on diversity and the Black experience. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts can be found. And you can also find us on all social media under the handle at SSN Podcast or at our website, SSNPodcast.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Say Something Nice podcast. We are so glad to have you here today. Today is Sunday, August the 25th, 2019. My name is Brandon. I am here with Ali. Hello. And a bunch of special... And Coffee Light Suite. Hi. And a bunch of special guests. Uh, We have Carolyn from the C-Dub Show. Hey, y'all. We have Greg. Hello. We have Yousef Lamont. Hello. All right. And we are here today because um, 2019 is the, represents the 60th anniversary of the founding of what eventually became the Motown Records Corporation. At one time, the most successful um, African-American business in the United States a record label that changed the direction of uh, black music. You know, it brought black hey, artists... pop music. Yeah, pop yeah. music. It brought, it brought um, black artists to the pop mainstream and sort of kind of set a path for crossover success for black artists in a way that hadn't... in a different way than had been done before. Introduced us to a lot of very talented, you know, like and like long-lasting uh, acts such as, you know, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, The Temptations, The Supremes, The Miracles, and so many others. And, uh, and even later on, we had, you know, Rick James, Tina Marie, The Barge, Boys to Men, and apparently, and Erica Badu, 702, and Indy and apparently now The Migos. Um, <laughs> are, 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 are we, we going to talk about this new Motown gospel? Because I need to discuss this. <laughs> what new Motown gospel? Oh, okay, they got Okay. What? R- R- remind yeah. us when we get to the, we get towards the um like the uh, modern stuff because yeah I hadn't heard about this. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. That's because you were teasing, Brandon. I have to keep you up on your. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta pray for me. Um. Yeah. So, what we'll be doing today is we'll first be discussing the general history of Motown Records. And then after that, I have prepared a playlist of 60 songs for for Motown 60. And we'll use that playlist, which I will also be posting. I actually have already posted on Apple Music. I'll hopefully have a link to it in the um, show notes and probably hopefully to try to do a Spotify version as well. And I'll be using that so we can talk about the artists because there's a lot of artists to cover. I didn't want to do a thing where like I wanted to find an interesting way to do the artists and take an example of their work. 
and cover it. That can way. we do playlists now? <gasps> yeah, we can do oh playlists. God. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness! Like Mine. Spotify and okay. Apple Music playlists, and just share it out and share a link. Cause that, All right. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. I think Carolyn just got excited. Um, <laughs> all right, but yeah, let's start out with the history of Motown. So the history of Motown, of course, starts with history of its founder, Barry Gordy. We call him Barry Gordy Jr. because that's what he wanted us to call him, but he's actually Barry Gordy III. Mm-hmm. Sir, that's right. Right. Uh, he, really? Yeah, yeah. So Barry Gordy I was um, a, a biracial. He was the son of a slave and a slave owner. Oh, that makes sense. I saw that picture. Oh, uh, no, no, you saw um, Barry the Second, who's the son. Yeah, you saw Dad. Yeah, but he's still he is still high yellow. Daddy Barry, Daddy Gordy. Yeah, so like I imagine that Barry the First. uh, Yeah, Pops Gordy of the of the Pops We Love You album. Yes, Pops Gordy. Right. So the Gordy family comes from Washington County, Georgia, which is also where my family comes from. Interestingly enough. What? Um, Yeah. Yeah, so that's where they're from. Um, you might be related. Get that money, son. <laughs> but yeah, so the family moved up to Detroit in the 1920s during, of course, the Great Migration, during which time, you know, a lot of the families from the South, the Black families moved out of the South and into, like, the Northern uh-huh. cities to work in the industrial um, industries up there. Mm-hmm. Detroit, of course, you know, is famous for um, automobiles and motor cars, and so it was called... Yep. Motor City, a.k.a. Motown. Yep. And so Barry Gordy III or Barry Gordy Jr. We'll call him Barry Gordy Jr. from now on because that's what he called himself. Um, but his son is Barry Gordy IV. He got the numbering back on track. Um, <laughs> uh, he was born in 1929 in uh, Detroit, which means that, yes, he is 90 years old and still with us. Mm. Um, mm. He... Um, God, 90. Ooh. Yeah. He dropped out of high school I'm- and. Well, go ahead, you stuff. I'm just, no, I'm just sitting here because I'm, I may be the oldest person here in the group. I'm thinking like, you know, Barry Gordy will always be like 35 years old to me, which is 35, 40 years old to me. I'm just, just, just stunned about that. You know, I'm, I'm 90. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He's, wow, he's, he's, he's still, and he still got it though. I mean, like, um, cause the reason for the timing, I forgot to mention it was cause Showtime, uh, has, put out a documentary where they um uh called Hitsville, the making of Motown, which debuted on Showtime last night. Yeah. Uh, it is actually a UK mm-hmm. production that they bought the US rights to. Really? Yeah, which started my problems with it. Like you know, it's, it's not a bad documentary, but like the UK has a, a definite bias towards the classic Motown stuff to the point where they deny everything else. And the documentary yeah. sort of kind of follows along with that. Oh, oh, yeah. There's no mention of the later, like the Rick, like Rick James and Tina Marie. Like, Rick James is is brushed over very quickly because they mentioned the Minor Birds, um, and Neil I mean, Young. I, wow, they did okay. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I mean, I, I I get the love for Northern Soul, and, and nobody loves North Northern. I mean, so weird. Like, I have to say it probably like Northern Northern Soul. Northern Soul. Uh, <laughs> you know, no one loves Northern Soul more than me, but but come on, mate. Right. <laughs> Chill with that. Exactly. Um, but yeah. Wow. And so that's why we're doing it today. Um, I wanted to do it all year, just trying to figure out a time and a place to do it. But so Barry Gordy Jr. dropped out of high school in the 11th grade to become a professional boxer. 
he, you know, tried his best. He was um, a professor of boxer for two years until he was drafted into the military in 1952 to go to Korea, spent a year over there, and came back. And so the fed, the, the Gordy family were a bunch of entrepreneurs. They all started businesses and mm-hmm. basically were trying to, you know, make money. Barry Gordy opened up a, well, before he opened up, um, he opened up a record store. Before that, he tried another business. Um, he tried the oldest living profession. It didn't work out for him. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Ali, Doctor Detroit, Ali, sorry, <laughs> Ali, you back there? The, when you say the oldest living profession, Ali, do you know what the oldest living profession is? The oldest living profession would that be carpentry? Nope. Oh Lord, they, they, Jesus taught y'all well on the island. Um, no, it's prostitution. <laughs> yeah. Barry Wait, Gordy was well, a pimp was for a doctor. little while. Was he? He was literally Dr. Detroit. Yeah. No, he was Dr. Detroit. There is wood involved. (laughs) Hi! (laughs) Oh, my God. Perhaps drilling. Hello. Some drilling, yeah. Some drilling. I mean, is she lying? (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Whoa, whoa. Stop, stop. Barry Gordy was a pill? Yeah. He wasn't a good pill. He tried it. But he tried. Oh, it was that a, makes so much sense. Which about is it. weird it was the, because was later on, he was really good at pimping folks. So how he couldn't pimp folks? <laughs> I mean, I'm I just saying. Understand. I don't Practice makes perfect. Right. I guess. Make, pointing out that he was a pimp, though, is important, like Carolyn said, for how things turn out later on in the story. I, I'll, damn, I'll be... Ooh, Jesus. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. So he started the 3D record shop. Which was like they he sold jazz records and 3D glasses. This was '54, so like you know the 3D craze in movies was sort of kind of on like the downswing, but it was still a thing. Uh, he apparently refused to stock blues and R&B because that's what people wanted to hear, but he thought that music was you know beneath him, so he refused to stock it, and the business went out of business. Which is case a- lesson here: record store employees have always been assholes, right? <laughs> and the other lesson, of course, is that he had to learn to give people what they wanted, not so much what he wanted mm. for them. Shit. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up having to go to work at um, the Lincoln Mercury plant up in um, Detroit, where he um, learned about the assembly line, which is a concept he later applied to his artists. The idea of that, you know, one person does one thing really well to contribute to building a product as a whole. And would later be the title of a great Commodore's song. Yes. <laughs> so I, I have a question at this point in the history. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, as I watched last night, and I'm pretty sure you paid attention to this as well, mm-hmm. they basically tried to assert that Barry got the idea to do Motown from the assembly line he worked on. He got the, I think he got the idea what, what he did later. Like, cause you know, like yeah. it took a, it takes a while to get from the motor, the four, um, the four Nick and Mercury Motor Plant to Motown as you know fully formed. I think it planted a now, seed, rather. Now, well, Brandon, do they talk at all about uh, his wife Raynoma at the time and her contribution? She's to it or barely not? mentioned. She is mentioned she's, and shown yeah. very quickly, but she is barely in it. Yeah, she's barely mentioned. Did they, they mention? Did they mention Anna, who was the original investor and had the first label Motown at the Anna under the Anna imprint? Yeah, no. They, they, please tell they, me they mentioned her like in passing, though. They show her a picture and they talk. She tells about his sisters a lot because the thing was, of course, that 
while he was working at Ford Motor Plant, you know, his sisters, Anna and Gwen, sort of convinced him, you know, to um, get into music songwriting because they had a friend, Billy Davis, who his cousin was Jackie mm-hmm. Wilson. Yep. And so... And the other thing was that Barry also knew Jackie from his boxing days because they both boxed. Yes, right. They used to be boxers. They didn't, they didn't say that, though. Yeah. And so... Yeah, um, they, 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 yeah go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was saying that they... they, they well, they, they knew each other from boxing days. They were... they. Uh, never boxed against each other because they were in different weight classes, but they were already familiar with each other. Right. So in 1957, Barry Gordy, Gwen Gordy, and Billy Davis wrote a song called Repetit for Jackie Wilson, which became a gigantic hit. And that set into like a, a pattern of Barry Gordy, Gwen Gordy, and Billy Davis writing and producing more songs for Jackie Wilson that were, that were hits for the next couple, next year or two. And uh, To Be Loved, I think, was the the one that Barry is primarily, uh, that, was, that, was the, that was the one that made his bones. And full disclosure, as, as noted here, this works directly familiarly here. My, um, my dad was in Billy Ward and the Dominoes with Jackie Wilson, who took over for Clyde McFadder as the lead singer of the group. So that's where the, the, the linkage happens with me because, you know, um, I think Jackie had, was signed to Decca Records. And they were looking for they were they were looking for songs, and they, you know, they had him doing like these crazy show tunes. I mean, and Jackie was singing stuff like "My Yiddish Mama" and stuff like that, oh, and and Barry writes this incredible song for him. Actually, Gwen, and then write "Petite," and then Barry writes "To Be Loved," and you know, off to the races. Right, and so, so that Barry got his songwriting bones made right then and there. Right, his autobiography is called "To Be Loved," Barry Gordy's. After so, where, where, where does "Lonely yeah. Teardrops" fall into this? It's in the same period, right? Same period, yeah, 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 yeah. Wasn't "Lonely Teardrops" the one where he didn't get enough money and he decided to just make his own company? Well, was it "Lonely Teardrops"? That it was like, I mean, he he was not getting a whole lot of money from songwriting. He was getting something, but not a whole whole lot. Uh, he, yeah. during this period, met a teenage boy named William Robinson, who everybody, of course, called Smokey. Mm-hmm. And Smokey Robinson had a group called the Matadors. And mm-hmm. he wanted to be, you know, a star and a songwriter. And Barry took him under his wing and um, started working with him. And he produced for them a song called Got a Job, a answer song to a hit song at the time called Get a Job which they tried mm-hmm. to turn oh, into a yeah, hit by yeah. selling it to another label. And that's where they didn't get a lot of money from it. And Smokey Robinson was like, well, you should just start your own label. That's how much money we're going to get from this stuff. And that's sort of kind of where the idea came in to start uh, his own label. He wanted to call it... You Tammy. control your own destiny. Yeah. He wanted to call it Tammy Records after... At that time, there was a movie out called Tammy starring on Debbie Reynolds, which is yeah. not a good movie. I saw it. Because they mentioned it, of course, in the Motown history. I saw it like last year. And it's, whoa, Jesus. <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if, if we were not driving, I would sing the beginning of Got a Job, but I'm not going to do that to the listeners. Just imagine. <laughs> but I do know it. I got a job. That's the part. And so. And when he found out there was already a Tammy Records, he decided to call his record label Tamla instead. And they started it in January of 1959 is when they got incorporated. Um, by this. And so 
they the first song that Tamla put out was Come to Me by Marv Johnson. I forgot. Mm-hmm. I think number two was a Wade Davis song that they forgot the name of. Number three, though, is Bad Girl by The Miracles. And because oh, what, a, what an incredible song. Yeah. She's not a bad girl because to look at incredible songs. Yep. And so they were selling these songs to other labels for distribution because at the time Tamla didn't have enough like resources to distribute the records themselves. Um, but eventually they got, you know, their own like distribution um pipeline in place. And the next year, 1960, they changed the name of the corporation to Motown Record Corporation after, of course, Detroit. And Tamla became one of what became many labels under the Motown umbrella. Mm-hmm. Now the thing is, didn't they but in, in England they kept it as Tamla Motown, correct? Right. Yeah, in 1965, they started Tamla Motown in England. Before that, EMI was doing their overseas distribution. I think right. Tamla Motown was for, like, all of Europe is what they released the Blu-ray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was their whole European. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you talk to British people of a certain age, they always say, well, Tamla Motown. They always call it by yeah, that Yeah, exactly. Uh, they, in order to get a headquarters for Motown, um... I forgot if it was Gwen Gordy or Anna Gordy. One of them found um, an old photographer studio on West Grand Boulevard. It was Anna. Okay. It was Anna on that. Right. And that became the Hitsville USA building. So this, like, so Ali, like, imagine a house. Like, you know, you go downtown, like, in downtown Atlanta, you see the old houses on, this, on like, in, in the neighborhoods? You there? Mm-hmm. Ali? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, talking, I'm talking to um, Ali because he's the one, like, I want to make sure that he sort of kind of gets to some of these concepts. So they took a house and they turned that house, like a, two, a, a two-story house with a basement, into the Motown offices. And that was the main headquarters until 1968. And so, like, when yep. they're having, like, gigantic hit records, they are in a house. Now, granted, a house. they started buying some of the other houses on the block when they started getting big, but... They're in houses. <laughs> yes. Yes. So they're literally I mean, in the hood <laughs> recording these records. Which would later on go to become a theme of some of the greatest record labels in black history. Yes. Recording in a house. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that how a lot exactly. of things I mean, start Right. I mean, it's, it's always something small where it's like, hey, guys, let's just meet up in the garage or in the basement. And but then it starts to mm-hmm. you know. Back then, then, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the labels had their own big studios. Right. Yeah. Like, well, the, the big labels did, but if you look at if you look at Sun Records in Memphis, it, it wasn't a house, but it was like a little, it was like, it was like a corner store. Right. You know. So it was and, Saks. Saks was and the same thing like with the grocery store. I thought Saks was a theater. It was a grocery store first because it was like outside of Memphis, okay. and then when they moved to Asheville, Memphis, it was the movie theater, the Capitol Theater, um, oh, okay. in um, Southwest Memphis. Yeah, um, and Stax had, of course, the you know, uh, the the you know, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, yeah, T A X Stax. They right. had the movie theater, that and that you know, just you you worked with whatever you had, right? Because like, because a lot of the time, anyway. getting the equipment was super expensive as well. Anyway, yeah. Like, of course, nowadays people can have a whole quality sound in the house because you know 
you can go to Guitar Center and get the shit you need. Um, there was no Guitar Center in 1958. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was not. Um, but so... You the damn, like, a 400-pound Ampex recorder down into your basement. Woof! Right. Good God. So they built the what became known as Motown Studio A later on in the basement of this house. Like, this, mm-hmm. yeah, the snake pit, they also called it. And so, like, they set up, you know, like, their own recorder down there. And they actually, the engineers at Motown actually had to, like, you know, do their own upgrades and things. Because they're in Detroit, which, you know, is far enough from New York and, of course, definitely from L.A. to where, like, you know, it's like they didn't have, like, the highest class engineers just hanging out to be able to build, like, what they needed. And so they had to learn to build some of the stuff themselves. They talk about how... Like, mm-hmm. when they went to, like, two tracks, then three tracks, then eight tracks, they were building that stuff themselves and trying to develop... Figure like, it out on the, on the fly. Right. To, like, to try to improve the sound in there. You know, like, when they first started out, they were using the um, the bathroom for their reverb chamber. You mm-hmm. know, like, all of these, like, you know, they're, you know, they're going with what they have. They're trying to innovate. Barry Gordy lived upstairs, and, like, he had to... Um, the upstairs part was his apartment for a while until he moved out and got his, you know, his mansion later on. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they're coming along. They start out with, of course, you know, the miracles and like um, they have one of their first, their first million seller is a song called Shop Around that they recorded, put out, you know, like, um, and then Barry called Smokey in the middle of the night one night. He says, I don't like the record the way it is. It's too slow. We got to re- uh, redo it and make it peppier. And that's the version that became the, the hit version. They recorded it at 4 o'clock in the morning. I, have a I was a little boy. My mama pulled me to a side. She said, son, you're growing up now. Pretty soon you'll take a bride. That's it. And then she said, just because you become a young... Oh, uh-huh. it. <laughs> yes. I had, a, I had a question about Shop Around. When I looked at Shop Around in this documentary yesterday, mm-hmm. um, I noticed the million, the the million seller plaque that they made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It looked very homemade. Okay. Oh yeah, we got to bring that up. So, <laughs> Motown Records. So, when you have a record label, most record labels were members of the Recording Industry of uh, so, Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA. Which the um, which the internet nerds know now because they were suing them over Napster and all that kind of stuff back in the nineties and two thousands. Like if you go to Wikipedia, the RIAA is kind of covered in the most negative light possible because it's the only thing they knew it from. But the RIAA was also, you know, they were the trade industry for the music industry, and they awarded labels with the gold and platinum record like um, awards when they sold five hundred thousand or a million copies of a single or an album. Motown refused to turn over their finances and books to the RIAA until 1977. Which would later bite them in the ass. Yes. (laughs) And so, therefore, anytime anybody was given a quote-unquote gold or platinum record at Motown, it was Barry Gordy and the Gordy people taking um, a a copy out back, spray-painting it, and putting it into a glass. (laughs) (laughs) Which is one of the most huge... You break up a little bit, Carolyn, but like, say it again. Numerous parts of Motown history. Yes. That, yeah. It was, was for a long time how long, that they weren't certified gold or whatever. Right. And also, so at Motown, Barry Gordy decided, you know, you know, he's coming in and bringing like these artists, like the early artists besides um, the Miracles and Marv Johnson included, Mabel John. 
And later, and they brought in Mary Wells and the Marvelettes. These are people, and um, Marvin Gaye came along as well early on. These are people who, you know, they were not yet stars. And so he decided that, you know, um, he was going to develop them the same way. This is where his idea of the automated um, assembly line came in. We're going to set these people up and turn these, you know, neighborhood kids and people who wanted to, you know, rough around the edges and turn them into celebrities who can perform for kings and queens. And this is how we're going to cross over into selling these records to not just black folks who will buy them anyway, but to white people as well. Uh, if I may make, oh, I just want the other person that was brought in as a performer and not a songwriter at that time was actually uh, it was Eddie Holland. Eddie Holland, yes, uh, who was who was of you would eventually come to know as of Holland Dozier Holland fame, but he was a spot. I, you and I discussed this online the other yeah, day. Yeah, he spot on Jack Wilson impersonator. Yes, um, with Jamie and, and um, leaving here and songs like that. He sounds just like yeah. Jackie Wilson. So, but he's brought on as a. Was that? No, go ahead. Oh yeah, so he's brought on to do that, mind you, as a performer, not even as a songwriter at this point, because this point the songwriting is Barry uh, Gordy and Smokey, and um, a couple of other people as well. Barry Strong. Yeah. You know. Those, those, I forgot to mention Barry Strong. Oh God, Barry Strong had the had the first big hit. It was not the first million so, but the first big hit on Motown. Um, money. That's what I want. Um, in 1959, mm-hmm. and um, it's um, a funny thing is that um, Barry Gordy and um, Raynoma um, Singleton, who became his um, one of his wives, I think his second wife or third wife, um, they are seeking backup mm-hmm. on money. That's them. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh. And, and, and it's so also, appropriate that the also when you talked about um you talked about how Barry wanted them to be able to perform in front of kings and queens, you, you got to shout out uh what was it, Maxine or Maxine Power? Yeah, Maxine Power. Maxine Power. We'll get, yo, I'll get to all that. Was. Like um, but yeah, the thing is though, in order to do this, who was their editing coach? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you break it up Brand. a little bit. But yeah. Um, what happened, Ali? The the version that you put on there onto the Google Drive to listen to yes that version of of um what I um money the, that's what I money by Barry Strong yeah. yeah yeah the the backup singer sound really I mean now I understand the the how technology has definitely grown because they sound very the quality of the sound the for the backup singers it just it it's very like if you 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 knew what they were saying just because you knew you know the lyrics. <laughs> you said it's bad. <laughs> Go ahead, it's fine. They recorded it in the house, Ali. <laughs> they didn't they didn't quite have the acoustics ready in the studio quite yet. Well, I was about to say like, what you hear is you know that's what I want. <laughs> and I'm like I know what you're saying, but the, the editing the you know you I mean. It just wasn't, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> what were you going to say, Yusuf? I, I think the, I think with the, you and I have talked about this before about it, it's, you know, uh, remastering of some of that early stuff doesn't help it very much because, of course, it was done on more archaic equipment. In fact, if you, I, I've, 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 I've joked about this. If you, if you want to listen to one of the, the, the worst mastered like uh, Motown like mega hits. Is like listen to ain't, ain't too proud to beg by the temptations. Like, oh yeah, yeah. For, for about thirty years, any version that you got before the song starts, it was a ghost vocal 
of it starting from about it was like, like uh, almost like five five seconds off. So they were figuring it out as they as they went along, and you know it, that, that that first stuff was pretty damn raw. But as was mentioned in the documentary, I'm sure they talked about how they improvised and came up with crazy things to make sounds like using brake drums and bicycle chains and all kinds that's of that's one thing they actually did not percussion. cover they didn't cover like the bicycle chains and the snow chains and things like that like um, i'm surprised they didn't oh, go they to didn't. that no but that's what oh, they, they did do. Like they left out a lot i don't know if i want to see this documentary i'm very proprietary about my motown history <laughs> and i don't think i like this yeah i don't think you would like it harold and i'll be honest like um I'm just, i got it yeah, Motown, I, I, right. But, if, I, if I can make a better Motown documentary <laughs> with my iPhone and some pictures off of Google, then what you give me the money? Because well, I guess you know they had Barry and Smokey there to narrate it, so that's why the benefit was. Oh, yeah. well, where's Greg? He's from Detroit. You don't know Smokey and and, and Barry to get him in my movie? I'm here, <laughs> but I don't. I don't. But yeah, I don't know. Barry, I don't Greg has know. Barry Gordy's phone number on speed dial. Go, call I don't right know now. them personally. I can't tell them to act right. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, to be honest, I was, you know, I was sitting there watching this and I'm thinking, okay, so they're not going to mention how Motown was concurrent to the Brill Building era. Right, the Brill Building, the Bill Spector era, and then the British invasion. But what I did want to say was, in order to set the Motown artists up to perform for kings and queens like that, you know, and for like, you know, mm -hmm. in front of like white audiences, Motown went above and beyond, in some cases illegally, the bounds of a record mm -hmm. label, what they usually do. They became each artist's record label, their manager, mm -hmm. and their talent agent. They had ITMI management and like ITMI talent. And so they would manage the artists, manage their money, manage their bookings and record their songs and put their songs listen, out. Listen, 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 listen. You mean to tell me you so brilliant. You can put all this scamming and pyramid scheming and stuff in here, but you can't sell no, you know, <laughs> booty? I, I'm not buying this. Maybe he had to learn. Like, I mean, he Either learned way. over time. But by the time, by the 60, he had oh, it together okay. because all the most time artists, you know, were signed to ITMI for their management and their talent deals and everything like that. They later on learned when they went to other labels that that was not how the shit goes and that, that is a conflict mm -hmm. of interest in a very big way. But let yeah. me ask you this, Brandon, because the thing that was all, not confusing, but was always weird about that to me is that they they were in in essence getting flim-flammed and fleeced. You know, all these conflicts of interest, but at the same time, them other labels who had all those things did not take care of them at all. That was one thing that was always did not. in all of right. their bios, is that, like, when they went that to these other the labels, they contracts were right, but they weren't necessarily taken care of. Because the difference is that Motown, Absolutely. from an emotional like and sort of did. kind of personal standpoint, they did take care of them, you know. That's where the talent artist development came in from. Like Smokey said, it's in the documentary. One thing I liked about it is they did go deep into the artist development. Even after the artist got famous, when they were in town, they had to go to essentially to class twi two times a week. And so mm -hmm. that included. Like teaching, I mean, teaching what, what fork to use, you know, how right. to curtsy. Yeah. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. Mrs. To, Maxine Powell. How to get in and out of a car. I mean, right. they, they actually taught the, taught the girls how to get in and out of cars without, like, necessarily showing all your good news. Right. Well, yes, because Maxine Powell was an, a full on etiquette coach and very picky, yeah. you know, yes. bought her in. She was in a documentary mm -hmm. in archive footage talking about, you do not protrude the buttocks. You know, and I was. <laughs> 
and teaching the artists that when they sing, you don't make these, don't you try to imitate like these Jackie Wilsons and James Brown. Don't make faces. You know. Mm-hmm. And when and when they had her on Motown 40, which by the way sounds like it was a much better documentary. <laughs> when they had her on Motown 40. She she was still about 80 years old. They had on her good church lady hat. And she, I said, look, and she she wanted him that went to her grave probably. She probably had some etiquette written in her will. Like that's how you put me in the casket. <laughs> <laughs> she probably did. They had uh, Maurice King in his department teaching vocal lessons and everything like that. Honey and, Coles. Yep. And they had um, Honey Coles teaching them, uh, like, uh, and teaching them dance moves. And mind you, not anything you know heavy or crazy and everything, but just look at an old Supremes performance from, from the, the Ed Sullivan show on YouTube sometime. They're moving, but they're not moving. Right. You know, it's, it, it goes to, it was just an episode of like, you know, I'm, I'm hinting at the beat here. But it was not the Ike and Tina Turner review, right? Well, that's what when they when they talked to when they talked to Charlie Atkins, the big thing was you know you had groups like the Isley Brothers before they got to Motown. They didn't want all that hair flipping. They wanted that smooth precision, and that was of course what you know the temptation became known for because the group before them, even the Motown ones, couldn't really do that smooth thing that Charlie wanted them to do. Yeah, like um before like Charlie Atkins became um one of the choreographers at Motown. Especially with the Supremes, the Temptations, and the Four Tops, he actually yeah. also the Pips last night, and the Pips who had hired him before they even got to Motown in the first place. Before him, you had and like smooth as butter. Yep, you had like the Marvelettes, and especially the um, "You Burnt My Heart," "Do You Love Me." What's them boys' names? Um, the Contours. The Contours. No, thank you. The Contours. Yes, yes. I blame they were out for rough a around the edges. Yeah, they were all on drugs too. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, we, but yeah, we don't care. Yeah. So that's where Dennis Edwards came from. Okay, yeah. I, so I love this. My, Dennis Edwards talking about how he joined the contours later on in the mid '60s. He was like, "They was all on heroin." Oh Lord! But yeah, so um, and so like, like they set up this basically this factory to turn out these artists and Motown. Um, business start to grow. Uh, Please Mr. Postman became the first number one hit single for Motown by the Marvelettes. And in 1962-63, they expanded because they actually, this is when Anna Gordy, who had started her own label, and her records, and she had her own stable of artists. And um, Gwen Gordy and her husband, Harvey Fuqua, Harvey Fuqua used to be the lead singer of the Moon Glows, the band from which uh, Marvin Gaye comes. Yep. Uh, they had Tri-Fi and Harvey Records, and so they came to Mo- all came to Motown, and they brought other artists with them, who included um, Junior Walker, Shorty Long, The Spinners, and, and Marvin the- Gaye, and Marvin Gaye, and the Ruffin Brothers, David and Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And so, like you know, the mm-hmm. roster is expanding, and they're having like more hits coming out. The Miracles have um, "I'll Try Something New." You really got a hold on me. Marvelettes have Beachwood, um, Beachwood four five seven four, eight five, nine. Had <laughs> to think about the. You can call me up and have a date any old time. Um, Mary mm-hmm. Wells breaks big. She starts having hits like Two Lovers and um, what's the other one um, that she had? Um, the one who really loves you. Um, and she was. Oh, what, what was, what was the, oh, the other? She was the first lady of Motown for the longest time. Yeah, um, and she uh, and Bye Bye Baby and things like that. Yeah. So uh, Mary Wells is basically the Faith Evans of yes, Motown. Yes, very much so. Yes. That's, a, that's yes, a good, yes, that's a good comparison. She's the Faith Evans. You she, know, She was the first queen of Motown, technically. Yes. And yeah. I, 
they probably didn't have this in the documentary, but the hell that to, for Bye Bye Baby, that rough voice that she has in that performance of it was not an affectation. They, they made her do about 40 takes. They roughened the voice up. I mean, yeah. Just burned her up on that. But it sounds incredible. But, you know, the joke was that she couldn't get that voice off in, in concert because that's not what her voice sounded like. Right. And so they just, they sort of kind of steered her towards more, like, um, less rough things. Like, Smokey Robinson wrote most of her hits, you know, and so, like, mm-hmm. and, uh, of course, including the biggest one, the one that everybody knows, which is My Guy. Uh, she turned 21 in 1964 and then, like, um, quit Motown. Emancipated. And, like, and, yeah. like her contract back then... When you turn, I don't know if it's still the case. When you turn twenty-one, all your contracts that that were like signed by your guardians for you in your stead became mm-hmm. null and void. So she used that, quit yep. Motown, and tried to go to another label, and she didn't have a hit ever again. That was sort of kind well, of. Well, that's why I said yep. she was the first one to learn that lesson, and she learned it a very hard way. Yes, she did about what life was like outside. She went to Twentieth Century Records, and they, yep. I mean, especially back then, they didn't know what to do with. With her sound, with that rough voice, they didn't know. I mean, they just wanted that money. They thought yeah. that they could just put her in there with anybody. Right. And yeah, poor her. I met her son years later when I was in college. Oh wow. I think when she died, she was in Southern California, and um, and I remember meeting him. Like I'm, you know, I'm a young girl. We walk, you know, when you walk the streets, along with all men trying to hit on you, <laughs> and he's like, you know, I think he told us who his mom was, and he showed us a tattoo. And I was like, yeah, right. At that time, I didn't really know the end of Mary Wells' story. Mm. But I believe, and I could be wrong, but I think that was Meech. Meech Wells, who was a big producer during that that um, that G-Funk era. Because I think that Meech had songs on uh, Snoop's Last Food, our last meal. I'm almost wow. like, There's one song where he says Meech on the beats, and that's Meech Wells. Oh, wow. Well, more importantly, Meech Wells is best known for... The um his work with Def Jeff and the remix for Teddy Pendergrass that was his last big hit. Oh, the, the, the Believe in Love Fat Philly mix, which is hard to find right now. If you tried to find it, it's very expensive record. Right, but that was like Teddy Pendergrass's last big hit before you know his eventual death. Wow. And it's, it's interesting that you you mentioned that fact that when those artists would go someplace else, because the same thing happened with Kim Weston, right? So when she left Motown to go to MGM with Mickey Stevenson, mm-hmm. right. who was another yeah. big time early person at Motown. Yeah, so Mickey that was Ste- her husband. Yeah, Mickey Stevenson came to Motown as an artist, ended up becoming the head of their A and R artists and repertoire. So he was basically in charge of the development of the artists and of uh, developing the in house band, the Funk Brothers, who played. The backing tracks on almost all of Motown's um, biggest hits, you know, led by at first Joe Hunter and then later on Earl Van Dyke. You know, you had Robert White mm-hmm. and Joe Messina on guitars and um, and Eddie Willis as well. You had James Dimerson on bass. You know, he's probably the most famous member because everybody, you know, and, like yep, knows exactly. The, and of course, uh, initially Benny Benjamin on Papadita, and then Uriel Jones and Pistol Allen on drums. Yeah. Well, this, I, this is a this I, is a part. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, if you want, just for the, the heads out there, go to SoundCloud sometime and just punch up um, the, uh, punch up uh, uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough uh, for, for, for that, and you'll see they actually have the original isolated drum track that mm-hmm. Benny Benjamin did for it when the song was considered it was going to be a solo tune for Tammy Terrell. Tammy. But then later on, they had um, uh, Pistol come in and he does 
these extra films on it, whatnot, which is the version that we would know for the, the Marvin and Tammy version, and they have it actually as an isolated track, but you can actually hear the production on it because at a certain point, of course, we know the, the sad thing with Benny and the, the, the demons that claimed and claimed him, and he uh, he became an alcoholic to... in his later life, and sort of kind of like he died in '68, I think. Did he die in the studio? Uh, no, he died. Uh, that was the original rumor. He died. He was he was be, being sought out for a session, and nobody could find him. Okay, and, and Earl went out to Earl Van Dyke went out to go get him, and he says, "Yeah, Benny's uh, Benny's not going to be coming in today." And they said for that literal day, uh, and Barry was kind of ticked off. They nobody recorded that day because uh, they found him he in an alley somewhere. But uh, it's just interesting uh, think, talking about um, getting back to you talking about with, with Mickey Stevenson and all of these people who you know we we know the big names at Motown, but people, we have a tendency to forget about the folks like Mickey and 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 Harvey Fuqua and the guys that were doing that grunt work in the background, guys like you know Gil Askey who was the arranger, listen to Lonely, Tear, Lonely Teardrops. Gil Askey is the one that did the, the chart right. for that. For, for Jack he Wilson. later became like, and, the, like, like the, um, the musical manager for the Supremes when they went on tour, especially when they started yeah, getting into Diana doing like those well, white yeah. clubs. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, um, because he could, he, could, he could do that. Yeah. And David Vandy, all those folks like that. So there was, there was what you saw. I mean, right. most of was like an iceberg. And the, the massive part of the iceberg was all that talented, but there was the even bigger part below that you didn't see. Right, very much so. Yeah. Um, so Mickey well, Stevenson and um, Kim uh, was married to Kim Weston. Kim Weston was a Motown artist who didn't quite ever pop a Motown, unfortunately. She had a lot of good songs. As a solo act, yeah. Yeah, a, as a duo with Marvin Gaye, she had to hit It Takes Two, but that's really Ooh. kind of it. Oh, yeah. Um, the both of them in 67 decided to quit Motown and go to MGM Records, and neither of them really had success over there, neither Mickey Stevenson nor yeah. Kim Weston. I had a question. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So one other thing I noticed as I watched, there was a part where they mentioned... Um, Something about a union and how they couldn't just record backing. Oh tracks yeah, so that, that like that was like so they mm-hmm. um at the time you had to have a singer singing on the session with the band because like how the union um, rules worked for the musicians, and that was how Martha Reeves became the um, uh, artist there because they were breaking all the union rules because they were recording their backing tracks ahead of time and then having the artists mm-hmm. come in later. Martha Reeves got that got became a singer because she was the secretary for Mickey Stevenson. The union man came yeah. to the, um, Motown to try to see what was going on, you know, that's a surprise. And so they rushed her in front of the microphone and had her singing. Found out she could really sing very well, and she became a Motown artist. Mm-hmm. She became the lead singer of what became Martha and the Bandels, who had big hits like Dancing in the Street and um, Heat Wave. Heat Wave I'm is ready actually... Sort of kind of, yeah, I'm ready for love. Heat Wave is sort of kind of, I would call the first quote unquote Motown sound song. It's like the yeah. first really yeah. big hit that was written and produced by Holland Dozier and Holland. That's the Holland brothers, Brian and Eddie and Lamont Dozier. Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier wrote the music and produced the songs. Eddie Holland did the lyrics and co- and did like the vocal production for it, coached the, um, the vocalists. And that set the template for what became the most popular and successful Motown records of the 1960s. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas don't really get enough enough credit outside of, you know, her being one of the best shade queens. But um, also, Dancing in the Street for the long time, the long time still is considered like the theme song of Motown. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. It's also well, considered... 
Because, like, it came out in mid-65. And so, at almost the same time as the Watts riots. And a lot of the rioters right. used that yeah. song as their anthem. And it took on a different well, life. The other cool... The other cool thing about that is that that was one of their, the, the back then Motown was actually attempting to do their own little music videos for it and whatnot. That one was shot at the Ford plant with them on, off the off the uh, the Mustang assembly line with right. them like dancing amidst like you you see these, these 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 cars being welded and put together and them skipping and dancing right through the assembly line. I, I don't know who got the clearance for that, but it's, well, I thought it's, that it's, was it's nowhere a, to run that they did on the assembly line, or did they do both of think, them? They might have done both of them there, but I'm pretty sure Dancing in the Streets was the one that was the first one. They're, they're, that's the one with them skipping around through there in the white dresses. Right. Um, and so, of course, once you get start getting to the mixes, you start getting into, like, even the bigger names that pe- more people know of. You get to the... First, you get to the, to the four tops who came to Motown from mm. Chess Records from other record labels as well. Levi Stubbs, Lawrence Payton, Renato Obi Benson, and Abdul Duke uh, Fahir. They... Um, had their first single was a big hit, Baby I Need Your Lovin', written by Holland Dozier in Holland. And so from there on, you know, they had a big string of hits all led by Levi Stubbs, who's one of the best singers ever. You know, you have um, yes, I yes, Can't yes, Help Myself, yes, the same old song, which was written and recorded in 24 hours. <laughs> without the one you love. Um, exactly. Without the one you love, life not worthwhile, right. after lonely. Yep. And then, and then they hit that magic stretch in 60, 65 to 66 with... Yep. You know, I mean, Burn to Death, Seven Rooms of Gloom, you know. Oh, it was, uh, standing oh, in the Shadows God. of Love and, of course, Reach Out, I'll Be There. Yes, indeed. I, I consider mm-hmm. Reach Out, I'll Be There to be the perfect Motown record. If if I, if I you called a gun to my head and said, Brandon, you can only play one Motown song for anybody to hear, it's going to be Reach Out, I'll Be There. I, I can't disagree with you on that. Right. The funny thing is, Burn to Death was uh, mm. often a misheard lyric. For burner dead. Oh, hell, <laughs> it's, that's, that it's makes written sense. on the label. It says <laughs> you know, burner dead. That don't mean well. You don't mean you know that, Brandy. You know better. You know black people. That don't mean nothing. Lord Jesus, right? <laughs> and so, Let's just keep it real. There were a lot of Motown songs that had odd, misheard lyrics. Like what was the damn Marvin and Tammy song? Um, it was I think it was ain't nothing like the real big baby. Uh, there's one part where I just swear that Marvin says go to hell. No, he did not go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> right. Who's rustling? Always, go to hell. That was me. I was getting out the car. Okay. Oh, she, she okay. Yeah, she went on mute because she's getting out of the car. She, she just yeah. got home. All right. Uh, Ali, okay. still, yeah, but, but, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Just, go ahead, Yusef. I'm still here. Oh, no, yeah. I was saying, yeah, 60, 60, 64 things started to take off. I think 66, 65 to 66. Was really the the, the stratosphere the, when he started the, hitting the stratosphere. We'll the get to that in a second because that, that involves the next two groups we're going to mention. Do you have any questions, Ali? Because mm-hmm. I, I I know we're starting to go like deep into like Motown stuff. No, but you guys are mentioning songs that I didn't realize were from Motown. Like what? Like what? For example, what you you guys just what you just mentioned as your favorite? Oh, reach out, I'll be there. I didn't realize that was Motown. It's on the list, right? I did put that on the list, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but I didn't realize that was. Yeah. I mean, again. One of those things where it's like you hear it on the you hear it on the radio, you hear it in the grocery store, you hear it like everywhere, and you don't realize where it comes from. Yeah, I, there's a lot of it's, those. It's so it 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 may be the most iconic of. I mean, and then passed down to a, a second generation from the end of Cooley High, right? That, that's also it's, it's, it's 
Yeah. Also, when you guys mentioned dancing in the street, like that's a that's another one where it's like, oh, so that's where it came from. Yeah, you probably heard the white woman. I don't know who the white woman is who covered it, but she her version plays in public all the time, and it makes me mad. Um, <laughs> oh no! Oh wait, wait are we talking about you Linda Ronstadt? That's what, uh, yeah, must be Linda no. Ronstadt. Yeah, but like, yeah, <laughs> it must wait, be her. Y'all don't remember the y'all don't remember those infamous cover of that. The one from it was Mick Jagger and David Bowie in the mid eighties. I don't remember they that. One. Dancing in the street. Yeah. I, oh I, my lord! It was. It made us so. It charted too. But you have to imagine like it's an invitation across the nation. A child you know? for folks to meet. Oh lord! I can imagine. Yeah, I never yeah, heard it. But it I can imagine. It makes it. me. It makes me like. <laughs> oh my god! They yeah, stayed I, in the streets, baby. No, come on. Yeah, man. I actually no. don't remember that because I was. Um, I I don't remember that Yusef because I was you know maybe ten in the eight well nope. eighty five I was I 10, was like nineteen so. years old and, and we and we we were gonna burn the radio station down behind that <laughs> oh shit <laughs> it was real I wouldn't blame it was, you. it was I wouldn't blame you yeah, after right. the show like this is not part of this is this will not be part of Brandon's uh, playlist this will listen to that one separately and then come back and listen to the original one. right. I have a question about that. Um, when you say um, it was covered um, and it got charted, does that mean that yeah. some money from that goes to the original? Yeah, like, uh, to the songwriters. When, like, so back in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s and 70s, covers were more common than they are now. Like you would hear a song on the radio, your producer would say, you're going to sing that song and they would put it out. And if it became a hit, it became a hit. You know, right. that's how right. a lot of like the late. white artists got into R and B. They covered black artists, you know, like um, or like as Elvis they were Preston. called back then, race records. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing yeah. about cover songs then was it, it wasn't like you waited a year. The, the the two songs would be coexisting on the charts at the same time. It's like, oh hell and, no. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So you absolutely. So wait, wait, hold up, Ali. Wait a minute, Holly. Who, Ali? Hold up, hold up. You know Brandon. You ain't watched Dream Girls. He's watched well, no, Dream I, Girls, but I don't I think he. That. I remember that part. Yes, I do remember that part in Dream Girls. Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm about to right. say now. Hold but, on. But I, I'm saying like you mean to tell me that I sat there and I wrote out this song uh -huh. in my mother's yep. basement, right? And then I, I went into our, our, you know, MacGyver together makeshift um, studio. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Song, song. Right, uh -huh. we put it together. You know, we struggled. We put it out there on the radio. It's a hit. And the you next thing you know, four long-haired boys from England are singing your record. Yep, that's how the yeah. Beatles became famous, like, Ali. They became they were they started out as a boat town cover band. Green girls. Okay, I so, <laughs> and hello, so hello, me, hello, hello, I just Curtis Taylor uh, giving payola and Dream Girls. <laughs> yes. That's where that scene came from. Yes, <laughs> I, I just need to know this one final fact. Do I get paid though? The writer gets paid. No. Like, 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 for example, <laughs> the, um, the, the Beatles um, were covered for covered for their first album. They covered um, "Please, Mr. Postman." The Marvelettes don't get paid. Um, Brian Holland and the other writers, uh, and Freddie Gorman and the other writers on um, "Please, Mr. Postman," got paid a little bit of money because Barry mm -hmm. Gordy also for that he signed a bad contract because he didn't think the Beatles would be a big hit. He lived okay. to regret. That. And. So so but the moral of the story but, but, but is, is that white people have been stealing culture and art from black people forever. Yeah. <laughs> and they just find new and they just find new ways to do it. Yeah. That's yep. it. But here's, wait, wait. But here's the plot twist. 
Tops. Uh huh. Here's the plot twist. In 1966, the Four Tops sit and cover the left bank's Walk Away Renee. Yeah. The left bank, a white group, and the, and the Four Tops actually take it to, it, and I think about it being a bigger hit. It was than a bigger it was hit for the left bank. The left bank's version. The left bank's so version is also terrible. Like, oh, <laughs> you like that? I have another question. I know. I know that modern contracts are way different than contracts of old. Mm-hmm. So uh, my next question is this. When the, let's say the Beatles, they covered a black band, right? Mm-hmm. And they covered or oh, whatever. You guys said, okay, some of the money, some of the, the earnings from what that song makes. Yeah, the songwriting goes, royalties goes to the songwriters. Right. Okay, some of that money, right? Um, <laughs> if you get big off of this song and you start cranking out stuff and let's say you put on your album our cover, the cover that you did of the song that I wrote, and you get big, is it a percentage of this money that I'm getting? You, you're getting, yeah, a small percentage, yes. The bigger you are, so the bigger your hit, the more money I'm getting as a writer, right? Right, as long as your contracts it, are Depending on properly, the deal you sign. Yeah, as long as you sign a good deal, then you're getting the right amount of money. You didn't, like, forfeit and take, like, 500 bucks up front or anything crazy like that, which happened to a lot of Black artists back then. Yep. Okay, yep. so and and you gotta remember too, Ali, that black artists, for some of them, they at first they probably didn't think too much about it because they couldn't get their they couldn't get their versions on the radio. On the white station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they couldn't get on the right, they could only get on the the, the black owned station, which had very low bandwidth. Right. You had to listen to it in the middle of the night, like sitting next to Local. the window yep. or some shit like that. Drive around in the circle which, of the neighborhood, you can't go downtown. <laughs> which, 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 <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, without even asking you all, I'm thinking to myself, if I was a black artist back in those times, I would just be happy that someone was trying to cover my song so that way at least my words would like would get out there. And so I may be, you know, let's say I'm I'm young, I may be naive enough to just yeah. say, just pay me. This, this, just pay me this big lump sum of money. Oh, yeah. At, at first, but then you eventually, you, once it happens enough, you then have the psychological toll of, of understanding that yours is only not making money because in society's eyes, you're not good enough. You're too black, you're too over the top, you're too loud, mm-hmm. you're not, you're too fast. And that you start like at first you like happy because you poor, your family living in a, in a shotgun house and you happy to get that little money. But eventually, you start to understand that the only reason you're not making the same is because society doesn't view you as valuable enough to make that money. Right. So eventually, that's going to unless you unless you Kanye West, then you don't care. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So that actually then, leads me into. But that's how payola got started as well. But it, mm-hmm. it, yeah. Yeah. Like um yeah like definitely payola's like get your record pay um played on the radio you slide them you know a couple hundred dollars to each station. Uh, so that actually leads me to talking about the Temptations and the Supremes really quickly. So we covered them in more depth when we get to the playlist. But basically, they were they were two groups that were quasi connected. They had the same manager. They used to be the Primes and the Primates. They came to Motown uh-huh. at roughly the same time. The Supremes came first, then the Temps came. They had no hits during the early '60s. They for they started in '60 '61, and they had no hits for three years. But Motown, the no hit Supremes, like back in in today's mm-hmm. in today's That's culture, right. they'd have been dropped quickly and you never heard of them but back then motown kept them up there's like we we want to try to get a hit because we like the temptations they're very talented and barry gordy like the supremes he was also obsessed with their lead their lead singer diane ross 
Um, from the was, Brewster Project. From the Brewster Brewster Projects, this, um, this skinny black girl with these big eyes. He he thought that she was the that she was like um his entire world, and so the he bees was knees. Yeah, he was he was having every um artist and I mean every songwriter, every producer try to write songs for both of these groups in January. He was on that Pig Hard. Yes, the big Malian Frankenstein stuff, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. In early 64, Smokey Robinson writes for The Temptations, The Way You Do, The Things You Do, which comes their first big hit and crosses them over. They have like a year of decent hits, and then he writes for them, My Girl, which breaks them big and takes them into like the pop like stratosphere, where they remain for and- the next... Um, and creates a monster named David Ruffin. Yeah, the end. David Ruffin became their lead, was their lead singer at that time. Well, he became lead singer when he sung "My Girl" because before that it was Eddie because Kendricks it was, and Paul El- Elbridge, Elbridge Bryant was the lead singer up in. In fact, on that first Temptations album, it's a lot of Elbridge Bryant and then a few David Ruffin songs. Right. And then the second Temptations album, the the official first album, the Temptations sing Smokey. That's the official all David Ruffin Ruffin album. But what's what's interesting that you you called out here, um, in talking about uh, my girl, of course that was the Smokey mere months before he had written my guy for Mary, for Mary Wells. Wells, and and my girl was basically was written you know on the road with the, and, and let's talk about the other secret weapon that Motown had there at that time is the the Miracles guitarist Marv Tarplin. Right. If you listen to a lot of those those early Smokey songs, they're all based off these these little guitar figures, and Marv would just sit around and play these little licks, and Smokey would say, oh, let's, that's a cute little lick, and then build these songs around it. For example, so, the biggest, best yeah. example is the Tracks of My Tears was built around that. Exactly. Marv Taplin took exactly. a riff from the Banana Bone song by um, Harry Belafonte and sort of kind of twisted it up a little bit, and that became the Tracks of My Tears. And, in fact, that Smokey writes, and I think My Girl was written while they were on the road somewhere. Yes. And um, they had to Smokey be saw- back because the Temptations yeah. all sing lead, but most of them only sing mm-hmm. lead in concert. Like they don't all have big hit singles. And he saw David Ruffin yeah. singing um, "Under the Boardwalk." Ain't nobody coming to see you, Otis. Yeah, Otis does. Otis can sing. He's not. He's the worst singer Otis, in his group. Yeah, but he can sing. He can sing. Um, but like uh, Smokey saw David Ruffin singing "Under the Boardwalk" by that. the by the um, the Drifters at the time. And he said, this guy can really sing. He should be, we should do a song for him as a single. And that's where My Girl came from. And uh-huh. so, like, you know, Tim's become a big hit. David Ruffin becomes a big star. Fame goes to his head. He becomes belligerent. And they replace him in 68 with Dennis Edwards. And then they have more hits until the mid-70s. Now, the Supremes, in mid-64, uh-huh. they had a hit with Where Did Our Love Go? A song that the Marvelettes rejected. Um, well, they they couldn't reject it for real. It's just that how knows your heart nice enough. They they didn't want it. We'll give it to somebody else because they could have said sing it anyway. But you know, they I guess they were nice that day, and so they recorded. And, the song. And I remember the Supremes were the Supremes were originally a quartet. Yes, they were Barbara originally a quartet. Martin. It was um because Barbara Martin was there, and then she got she got pregnant and then left the group. Um, so it was Diane mm-hmm. Ross, Florence Ballard, Mary Wilson. They um. The funny thing was that when they recorded Where Did Our Love Go, they immediately went on the road on um, um, a Dick, the Dick Clark tour. The Dick review. Clark was the um, of American Bandstand. They went on the road in, during the summer. By the time they came back home, at the end of the summer, they were stars. Where Did Our Love Go hit, hit number one. And so that started a five-song number one streak for them. Where Did I Love Go, Baby Love, <laughs> Come See About Me, Stop in the Name of Love, and Back in My Arms Again. All right, but go ahead, Greg. Sorry. So Destiny's Child and the Supremes have a lot more in common. 
in what oh, way? A, oh yeah, oh yeah. Where yeah. Before, but then they had most success as three. Oh Jesus! Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I love you, but the, but the thing is, <laughs> Destiny Shaw had success as four as well. The Supremes had no successes. Yeah. Barbara Martin and, left and mad going back early. To you said, Carolyn, Carolyn earlier on said no hit Supremes because. That wasn't just Carolyn said that. That was what, that was what was said what, what in, right. in the hall. Yeah, like they had to keep their their keep while they were there. Even though Barry Gordy wanted them around, what wanted Diana around, they are singing backups and doing claps on a lot of songs. They're singing a backup on uh, Mickey's Monkey by the Miracles. They're singing a backup on You're a Wonderful One by Marvin Gaye. They're on a lot of those early Motown songs before they became famous themselves. Mm-hmm. And so... Before the Andantes would take over and then later on, eventually become the other Supremes behind Diana. Yeah. So, that's yes. so the Andantes were the in-house uh, female backup mm-hmm. group for Motown, with the originals being their, um, the male equivalent. And the Andantes were used a lot for these artists because a lot of these early Motown <laughs> artists, a lot of the groups, they sounded fine on the corner perhaps, but a lot of them frankly couldn't mm-hmm. sing harmony when you got them into a studio. The Marvelettes being a mm-hmm. key example. And so they would record the Marvelettes, yeah. to dismiss them, and sneak into Andantes to do some overdubs and smoothed out the harmonies. Wait, you can mm-hmm. do that already? What what year is this? This is 60. This is like 62, this 63, 64. They could do it. They literally are recording over the track at first. Later on, when they got eight tracks, you had songs where you have one backup track for the Marvelettes, one backup track for the Andantes. Same thing with the Supremes. They did that as well. And then, like Yusef said, later on, they decided, well, we don't need the other girls. Just have Diana and the Andantes on there. The Four Tops, because... The Four Tops' harmonies were a little bit... Like, they were used to singing, like, Supper Club songs. When they got into R&B pop, they weren't as good. And so, the Andantes are in there. So, every big Four Tops hit is actually seven of them. Or eight. Yeah, listen listen to the listen to the backgrounds. You'll hear these... these, these uh, I think um, Luvon Demps, who was with the, the lead uh, of the uh, Andantes. You'll hear these these really high soprano parts. And I was like, yeah, I was like wow, the Four Tops... Yeah. Who the hell is doing that? Yeah. Who, who's that high tenor? Like, oh, it's girls. The, <laughs> it's women. <laughs> yeah. With, with, exactly. With this incredible sweetening. But right. Probably the, the best thing. Listen to, listen to Seven Rooms of Gloom by the Four Tops because there's on the end of each chorus, you'll hear there's this whoop in the background. Like, that is not a dude. Nope. So it ain't. So, but in a yeah. matter of speaking, Deborah Killings is a one man on Dante. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, she is. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Brandon <laughs> told me about her. <laughs> the real, the real TLC. Uh. But, but you know, but you know what's interesting here? And you delay this out, you start to see all these little. It, it was more than just like the Funk Brothers and some singers. There's all these other little parts that come into play that actually create the Motown sound. Yeah, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, for example. Like, it's a big help. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, they recorded a lot of these more, like, frankly, the more white-leading stuff. They recorded a lot of it in Los Angeles with, with the um, the wrecking crew, they called them. Um, Carol Kane and all, yes. of, all those people over there. So, essentially, mm-hmm. mostly a white band recorded a lot of these more. Like, when the Supremes... Um, so, what... Um, a couple of the hits, like, um, More Love by the Miracles recorded by them. But the Supremes, Barry Gordy said... That you know the Supremes, in particular Diana Ross, would be the um, the the um, the head ship as they sell these artists into the mainstream pop culture. They were going to use the, mm-hmm. the Supremes because Diana Ross, Diane Ross, at first when she became famous in '65, she changed her name to Diana. 
which is not her name. Um, mm-hmm. They decided they were going to be, because she sounded like a white girl on the record, they were going to use them and take and use that to get into the Copacabana nightclub, into Las Vegas, into all these high-priced dinner and show places and everything, and get them onto television. The Supremes were on the Ed Sullivan mm-hmm. Show in late 64. They came back, I think, 16 or 17 times after that. You know... They did episodes of Tarzan playing, like, nurses, of these, these nuns right. and stuff like that. Yeah. They, they were, advertised bread. Nah. <laughs> they had yep. Supremes nah, Wonder I, Bread. I, nah, oh my God. I was about to say, I know it's Wonder Bread. Wait. I know it's Wonder Bread. <laughs> for, 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 for Ali, <laughs> but for Ali, real quick, this, this is the part where... Since you do remember Dream Girls, this yes. is the part where Jennifer Hudson is more like the Florence mm, Right. So, absolutely. The thing is that before they break, came to Motown, um, Florence Ballard was the lead singer. She was always determined to have the best voice, just that she sounds like a black girl. Donna Ross sounds like a white girl. And so, when Barry Gordy wants to have a crossover pop success, he wants the one who sounds like the white girl to sing. And also because Diana was skinnier. And I so, was about to say, because, yeah. wait, wait, on, Brandon. So also, the the second part to that is that he's trying to get them more visible in, like, right. actually visible in terms of at events, right? And what? And so the more popular body, I guess, right? Because well, the funny thing is, Florence was light skinned and Diana was dark skinned, and so and it was like, fat, yeah. mm-hmm. fat equals black, right? Mm-hmm. Fat equals black. But, so mm-hmm. no. And the other thing was that Florence. Florence was any more buxom figure, so technically, if you if you want to if you want to get totally you know socio political about this whatnot, that was not the thing that they necessarily wanted out there. They wanted they wanted the maybe it's the time of Twiggy. They wanted them lean and stuff like that. Right. And and Flo, if you look at the covers and whatnot, they did their best to try to pose her to sort of you know ch- sort of remove that a little bit. But you know, Flo had it going on. Yeah. Put it, put it like and this, Yusef. They, they so, really- the, so the moral of the story is that this is this is the chapter where Barry Gordy creates the blueprint for how you cross over and how you look more how you look more European, how you sound more European to make yourself more palatable to the listening audience. I mean, right. he created the yeah. that people are they still wanted, being so tortured I, with to this day. They wanted they wanted they wanted Barbie's black friend Christy. Yes. <laughs> You are, you, yeah. yeah, you had a question, Ali? You yeah. had to start asking a question? Well, I have a question about the... I have a question about... Now, we understand that this is what um, Barry Gordy realized for the white audience. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a question about the black audience at the time. Okay. What did they think? Hold that thought. He, he didn't care. <laughs> no, no, like, hold that thought. So, I do. I did want to say that Barry Gordy's plan did work. He got the Supremes into the Copacabana. He got them into mm-hmm. Las Vegas. They became... Even bigger, they had even more number one hits after this. They had I Hear a Symphony and You Can't Hurry Love and um, um, You Keep Me Hanging yeah. On, The Happening, you know, like, and they're like on top of the world. The black audience doesn't really like the Supremes at the time. They were more into the Vandellas. Yeah. They were more into Mark than the Vandellas. Really? Were, yes, they were. Yes. It, so this yeah. is also, so Ali, and I don't know, because, you know, I don't, I'm not on every show. This is the part that you do not see in Dreamgirls, but you do see it. In the four, I mean the five heartbeats, because eighteen <laughs> Junior talks about losing. He, he remember he talked about he talked about how, and this is something that they probably don't cover in the documentary. Crossover ain't number the double time, cross. Yeah. Motown, yeah, right. He at the time Motown would not put a, a lot of their artists on their album covers. They were putting all kind of stuff. That's the, right. The legendary story of the two white lovers on the cover of Isley Brothers album. Right. So Ali, you know yeah. Ronald yeah. Isley, right? Yes. So for a little period in the mid-60s, they had signed to Motown where they had a big hit written by Holland Knows Your Holland called This Old Heart of Mine. 
You know that song because but well, that song is actually my 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 um, my alarm in the morning because it's like I needed something I know to wake up, and so you know, that's the song I hear every day when I wake up. This old heart of mine on the right. album for this old heart of mine. It is two white people with encircled in a in a graphic heart. The eyes these are on the back cover. So when you're in the record yeah. shop, you see all oh, these lovely white people. This old heart of mine. It's nigga singing. <laughs> That's why I that's why I brought up this because you all are talking about the crossover and I totally understand that Barry Gordy is obviously he's following the money, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. how is the black how, how is our black community reacting to this? Are they going, well that guy's selling out like well, this com- like some, what are they Some of them are, but some of them because also the temptations though pretty much kept their black audience like for whatever reason unapologetically Black. Yeah, like they they were they they leaned a little bit black because they had Paul Williams, so you can't you can't rub those edges down at all. That 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 is a Negro, that is a that is a Junior single Walker black man All-Stars. from Alabama. Um, <laughs> and David yeah. Ruffin as well. Junior Walker in the All Stars. Yeah, they had Junior Walker in the All Stars who were signed to the label uh, who had a song called Shotgun, which was like that like the, the kind of sound that you mostly heard in like black like clubs things like that so they juke had yeah. like juke joints you know they had people like that they had a they had a subsidiary called soul records and vip records that put out songs that didn't sell as much as they pop but they were bigger hits in the black audience like glass ain't the pips were there um the um mm-hmm. elgins were um there the velvet people like that who they they were what motown used to sort of kind of stay relevant to black people and then, of course, once you had Stevie, once you had Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye popping off in the late sixties, early seventies, you know that solidifies that as well. But the Supremes, no, not them. The best way, to, the best way to think about this is that the Motown, the, the, the main labels of the main acts was basically Pam Cooking Spray, whereas the Soul label was basically Crisco. It was cooked with lard. Yeah, Hello. exactly, lard and Crisco. The interesting thing to me to that be more you- relevant, you have Popeyes, you have Chick Fil A. <laughs> <laughs> Lord. But the, the interesting, go ahead, go ahead, Greg. Go ahead, Greg. The interesting thing to me that when you guys are mentioning this is I'm relating what Brandon said about the Supremes to how folks felt about Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yes, exact same thing. Exact same thing happened to Whitney Houston. Exact same thing. Um, and she got booed at the Soul Train Awards. Right. Girl, did she? Mm, ooh, she got booed. Y'all never mm-hmm. seen that clip before? Ooh. Right. Yeah, yeah. They, they booed I, I, and, and the legend goes that the Pointer Sisters was the one that started. That's so Oakland. That's some shit that Oakland would do. Get out That's what the legend serious? goes that the Pointer... Because I don't know if the Pointer Sisters were... They wouldn't have... I don't know what category it was. It, so it, I don't think they were against her. But for some reason, the story goes that something happened to where they were the ones that started the booing. Wow, that is insane. Shady. Yeah, so during the mid-60s as well, besides the Temps and the Supremes, you had TV Wonder, who had joined the label a couple of years earlier at the age of 12 and had a hit with fingertips, but nothing after that. In 65, he sort of kind of, they reinvented him as a teenage star, and he had his first big hit as a teen, Uptight, Everything's All Right, and that started his string of hits, you know, A Place in the Sun, um, I Was Made to Love Her, uh, Shooby Dooby Doo Da Day and the um, Black Twitter's favorite classic Motown song, My Sherry Amore. Um. <laughs> can we pause for a moment to talk about? Can we pause for a moment and talk about the song that he co-wrote when he was 16 years old that was not released? That he did the the demo and recording of 
That, uh, Aretha Franklin. Uh, what's like that name? That song. Um, until you come until back. You come until back you to come me. back to me. My yes. favorite Aretha Franklin song. Yes. So wait, wait, hold up. Back he up. Back wrote up. That. He wrote that in yeah. sixteen, and it was never released. Yeah, he wrote it in sixty-seven. Yeah, it, it didn't get released it, until nineteen seventy-seven when they did the the Looking Back anthology. From uh, mind you, Aretha had the song had been making the rounds in business. Oh, this is great. This is a great song. This is a great song. Aretha it goes sucks. and does it in 1973. Barry realizes, like, Stevie's okay, version. We, already got we got this already recorded. So they put it out. And, and mind you, the Stevie's Until You Come Back to Me was never released as a single. It only appeared on an album as a, a I won't even call it a filler track, but almost like this weird sort of, here's this extra a bonus on the track. Looking Back anthology that he puts it out there in 1977. And then it charts. People are like, oh, Stevie did this really good cover that is it. No, the dude did it seven years before. Carolyn don't wow. like it. Though, so, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. Well, right. So that's it's actually almost a similar story to all I do then. Yeah. It is exactly the same thing. Because all I do was written back in the <laughs> and Tammy Terrell did it, but they never released it. Yeah. Like and yeah. Stevie, exactly. Stevie so, was not Carolyn, check your signal. You cutting up really bad. Sis. Yeah. <laughs> Carolyn, you sound like RoboCop. Yeah. yeah, Carolyn, check your signal, baby. She's still trying. She's still trying. I'm going to have to mute her. Hold on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? Anyway. You may need to um, come off and then come back on. Yeah. Carolyn, if you can hear this, try, try, to, try to drop and then come back on for yeah. us. Yeah. So the yeah, the because I remember looking that up back in uh two thousand three when they put out the Southern mm-hmm. Full of Motown compilation. Yeah. And I heard Tammy yeah. Terrell, like, wait a minute, sixty six? Yeah. Wait a minute. Yep. Yeah, so let you me know, let me actually Stevie, like um so oh, I think is Carolyn there? She might be I back to she's gonna you. reload. Okay. But yeah, I mean Stevie was it, it was already a, a singing talent at the time, but he really came into his own as a songwriter right. around 66. And then he starts, he starts, he starts grinding this stuff out. Right. Cause you know, he, he's writing, him, um, who was a Clarence Paul, who was his, uh, his, uh, um, his handler at Motown uh, his, his and his producer. And also his mother, Lula yeah. Mae Hardaway was writing with him as well. Mm-hmm. Cla- Clarence Paul. Yeah. 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 Okay. Clarence Paul was his handler. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Like his, well, not his like, handler. At first, he was the he was the handler and the producer, as I as I understand. Yeah. He was both. Okay. He was sort of like his musical director. He was the handler. He was the one that would walk him out on stage and everything when he was performing. Right, because we yeah. we didn't mention for anybody who grew up under a rock. Stevie Wonder is blind, of course. He was. Yeah. You're like um. We think. Uh, all right, all right, we Keller, think. Keller, we're not doing that. He's blind. You know how I know he's blind? When Will Smith did the 1999 MTV Music Awards and he did Wild Wild West, he brought out Drew Hill, Kumo D, and Stevie to perform with him. They left Stevie on the stage when they were done. <laughs> no PR from Drew had to run back out from behind the stage and get Stevie and lead him off because they forgot the nigga was blind. Listen, yeah. I'm, I, the I only don't reason why I joke about that, that is because if you try to fast one and you out there in front of all them people, you're not gonna let your hands slip that you ain't blind. I'm just playing. I'm just joking. <laughs> Set up, Saki Khan. The only reason I joke about that is because I, I've I've had a chance to work with Stevie several times through my job and everything, and it's he is blind. It's just that his acuity of hearing will will, will fool you into thinking otherwise because he's just he's just he's very aware of his surroundings. 
Right. Plus, he's got he's got a hand, hand baseball mitt. He does not have long, delicate piano player fingers. If Stevie slap you, your grandfather's gonna feel it. He got some big ass hands. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Right, so you had Stevie Wonder, you had Marvin Gaye, who started having hits. Like, he had hits throughout the 60s. He had Pride and Joy, Stubborn Kind of Fellow. He had How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. He had my favorite, Little Darling, I Need You. I know it's weird to have that mm-hmm. favorite Marvin Gaye song, but that's hey, that's where I am. Um, and, and, like, later on, the late later 60s, of course, you know, he had... Um, uh, well, we'll talk about Her Do the Grapevine later on. You also had Tammy Terrell come to Motown at this time. Tammy Terrell come from um, James Brown and from um, her own solo records as well. Uh, she came to the label, she recorded her and stuff like that. Stevie Wonder's song, All I Do. Nothing popped. They put her with Marvin Gaye as a duet and they became, and, and, and she elevated him and he elevated her and they became this, you know, big success. She unfortunately is diagnosed with brain cancer at 67 and that's sort of kind of his decline until she dies four years later. Well, remember, she actually recorded Ain't No Mountain High Enough as a solo. Right, and she recorded it as a it. solo, didn't release it. They, they they came back and added Marvin to it and turned it into a duet. Child. They say David Ruffin hit that lady with a hammer. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know if that's true. That was the rumor, yeah. <laughs> that was the rumor. So well, it was not a hammer, it was a, it was a lamp. But So David Ruffin and Tammy Terrell Ali were dating at the time. And they lived and living mm. together, even though David Ruffin was quite married. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. And he proposed to Tammy Terrell until Tammy found out he was already married and then realized what, what the fuck is going on and left him. He was, try- he was double dipping. Yeah. 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 And let's be let's be blunt, um, if you'll pardon the unfortunate accidental uh, pun there, coming from James Brown's band and whatnot and everything, she, she, there, there was supposedly some abuse there as well. Yeah, James Brown mm-hmm. abused her as yeah. well. Like, yeah, she, she had a rough go of it. Going, going. You had a question, Greg? Yeah. Going back just a little bit, Rosalind Ashford. She's a member of Mm -hmm. the, I think she was in the the Marvelous. She's in one and then she jumps to the other. I forget which right. direction it is. She was in one group that she jumped to the other. I think it's... She was in the Vandellia. No, I mean, yeah. Rosalind was... I'm, I'm wrong. She was actually a... Um, 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 Martha Reeves. Um, Vandella. Vandella. Mm-hmm. Right. She Vandella. Is, she related to, is she related to Valerie? Simpson? No, that, she would be and related Nick to Ashford? Nick. I don't think she or is. Nick Ashford. Nick Ashford. Is yeah. she related to I Nick? I don't think she is. No, mm-hmm. he, she's not. But Harvey Fuqua, the producer, and of course the Moon Glows lead singer, he's the uncle of Antoine Fuqua, the director. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They are really cool. Yep. cool. Um, okay. And so, like, so I, I mentioned Tammy Terrell. I mentioned um, who else do I need to mention who's sort of kind of having big hits at this period? Um, Glass Night and the Pips side on in late 65. They were already famous from the Chitlin circuit and from their own records. They came to Motown. Mm-hmm. They had a big hit with a song produced by Norman Whitfield, written by Norman Whitfield and Barry Strong called I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Now, Norman had recorded the song with a bunch of other artists beforehand. This was the first version that Barry Gordy liked to release enough because it sounded like Respect by Aretha Franklin. Oh! Mm-hmm. After yep. it became a hit, Norman Whitfield bugged him to record one of the er- to release one of the earlier recorded versions by Marvin Gaye, this weird voodoo. And they put it on the albums, Marvin Gaye's album In the Groove in 68. The DJs played it off the album. They had to release it as a single. It became the biggest single in Motown history to that point. 
four million copies. Yes. Wait, but but go back a little bit. Going back just a little bit to what you just said, mm-hmm. I never thought about it like that. Yeah, that's why that's why it was released. It sounds like respect. Shit. Yeah. Respect was the hit at the time. Because it was a big hit. And, wow. and it goes back to something that that Brandon said earlier about everything that was coming out on the soul label had that greasier, grittier sound. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, that greasier, grittier sound had. It was a little more. It was a little more Memphis than it was that that so-called high tone uh, that that Detroit sound. So it had that that a, a bit more oomph to it. Right. And Gladys then recorded for Soul. Yep. Wow. The, the, to me, that's a bit of a revelation because I always mm-hmm. liked Gladys Knight's version better. Because you like Aretha. Oh yeah, it it, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They want, and, because, and you had the thing because but, Barry always had this thing where he because they both have that church sound that Barry ran from. But right. he had this thing where he would yeah. run from something, but then when he saw it was mm-hmm. popular, he, he would knew, run he back to it. Yeah, he <laughs> run right bit. back to it. <laughs> right. And so right all these it. all these artists are having hits, and the more we'll talk about later. In, uh, and at this time, Motown is expanding. They're buying more houses on West Grand Boulevard. They finally moved to the um, a building on uh, Woodward Avenue, like a like a high a high rise. Um, and they move all their offices there. They still keep Hitsville open. At the same time, in the late sixties, they're buying other stu- studios in the in the um, area. They buy Golden World Studios and Rick Take Records, which yeah. they bring Edwin Starr in. To their fault. Evan Starr has a big hit with a song called War. I didn't know they bought Rick Back Strong. Records. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. They, wow. it, double Agent Double O Soul, Stopper on Sight. Mm-hmm. All of that was, they, they. those songs are actually pre existing songs. Mind you, the Funk Brothers were actually sort of just going like a few blocks down and recording that stuff there with on them. the sneak. It, they were, they were, they were de facto more pissed. <laughs> yeah, of course he was. Yeah, Barry was super pissed. And even down, well, because, getting down well, to the funk. The yeah. way I heard it, though, the Funk Brothers were jazz musicians who moonlighted it. Yeah, jazz. that's very yeah. true. Yeah, because they played at the Twenty Grand Club, which was like the big club down there. And actually, Golden World and th- that studio was next door to it. So, uh, and there's all kinds of things that you know with with uh, how the Twenty Grand Club was where everybody came through who was doing music, uh, black music in Detroit. But yeah, um, uh, he, he, when he buys that studio, he basically gets the masters also. Right. So wait a minute. So yeah. that, and, me, they, and they tell the story the about how when the when the Funk Brothers would be in there playing the uh, the Motown song, and I'm not a music person, to bring y'all, y'all have to explain. I've never. It's one of those things where I can hear what they're talking about, but I don't really know. So they would say how he would be in there, kind of monitoring to make sure, like you said, they were moonlighting during jazz stuff because that's what they like. That was the the feel that they were going for. They were playing these other soul acts that were more soulful. When they would come into the studio to do the Motown song, and Barry would always tell them to stay on the upbeat, stay on the upbeat. And James mm-hmm. Jamerson would, on the sneak tip, like get on the downbeat behind Barry's back, and then right when Barry would turn his back, he would get back on the upbeat. Yeah, they actually and that was kind covered of that in documentary. That's one they did they, cover. They did cover yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah. so just just real quick, and, and Brandon, please pardon the analogy again. Okay. <laughs> But basically, Barry Gordy is the Jay Z of back then, then, right? What? <laughs> I mean, kind of, kind of. Wow. I see where I see where you're going. Um, running, running Damn. from black stuff and then running towards it when it's popular. I see what you. I, 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 I see. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But but the thing was that he well, I think Brandon's gonna get to this where the things where things sort of start to grow beyond the point where Barry could control it. So yes. Brandon is you. Yeah. All right. So this is late the late sixties. Um Motown's growing bigger than ever. Um, the Supremes have dropped uh, Florence Ballard, replaced her with Cindy Birdsong, and become Diana Ross and the Supremes. They are. Hey, hey, hey! And you can't leave out how she had a soul, Cindy, from Patty in the Blue. Yeah, so Cindy Birdsong. Like, so Ali, you know Patty LaBelle, right? I do. Yeah, she makes pies now, but before <laughs> that, she was a big R and B star. <laughs> oh. Why are you like this? Oh. <laughs> oh. But back in the '60s, before she was super famous, when she was just like famous to us black people, she had a group called Paula Bell and the Blue Bells that she had started with her best friend from childhood, Cindy Birdsong. Cindy Birdsong happened to look a lot like Florence Ballard, and so mm-hmm. when Barry Gordy was trying to get rid of um, Florence Ballard, they at first wanted to hire um, Barbara Randolph, who was an actress and a singer. She's in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Barbara Randolph sang too well for Diana Ross's taste, and so they didn't bring her in. They they went they went and got Cindy, but Cindy was signed to Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, and their lawyers were like, no, fuck you, this, this isn't happening, we're not taking her. And so Barry Gordy fought and fought for months in early 1967 until he finally got the ink drawn a contract, and Florence Ballard was um, performing at, um, they were at the Flamingo, Flam, uh, Fl- uh, Flamingo Club in Las Vegas. Florence Ballard was mm-hmm. drunk, her, her her show was bad. They literally yank her off the stage when the show is over and take her to the airport. Cindy is already there because she's already been rehearsing and watching the shows, and her dress is already ready and fitted. They didn't sing mm-hmm. Which would become a theme for the same shit they did to the Temptations. I'm Hold a second. Yes. Yeah, Brandon. What the, thing, Brandon. the thing that Motown would do was when they wanted to replace a vocalist, they would have the shadow vocalist off to the side, sort of you know, sort of monitoring, you're doing doing this sort of this sort of stuff. And then when the time came to move that other person out and move the other person in, it was it was it was as it was seamless as possible. Seamless. Right. Brandon, yeah. when we did the so, when we did the Dennis Edwards tribute, didn't you say that like Dennis was on the road for them for a long time? Yeah, because well, the contours oh, yeah. were opening <laughs> after the temptation. So he knew the show when he joined. Ali, you had a question. Basically, this is like this is like football when you're when a when a team is watching the replays, right? Yeah. So we've been studying you, whatnot, and then what they did is they watching the films. They, they've been yeah. So they they she she's been studying. She sees okay. So this is how it works. Put me right, in the game, and, coach. Right, <laughs> and then and then when you know and because they knew you know I mean hey I mean Florence will always be caught sleeping, right? <laughs> They were just like, okay, so you you fucked up for the last time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is uh, how it also connects to uh, Jennifer in Dreamgirls. The scene in Dreamgirls where she's on the stage thinking, I am telling you, I'm not going, yeah, I, yeah, is I, the yeah. depiction of Florence Ballard being fired from the, from the Supremes. It happens, right, exactly. the funny thing, in the movie version, it happens across the street at the Caesars Palace instead of at the Flamingo. When they do like the establishing shot of showing you the outside of the strip, the Vegas strip, that you see they're across the street <laughs> from the one that the Supremes are at in, the, in our, in our well, timeline. They couldn't, they couldn't do exact because... Then yeah, that that's the fine. joke. That's the joke. They're not doing exact, but they're, they're across the street. <laughs> Everything. That was the joke way, in the whole movie way, of Dream Girls. It made me so mad. That's all they pissed me off about that movie. Yeah. Everything well, so that, was, we way, couldn't so do it exactly right. Like. Didn't, didn't you say, Brandon, didn't, uh, like, didn't you say that, that Diana Ross, when she 
she saw this movie and she was she was pissed, obviously. She saw the play. She claimed she never saw the movie. Yeah, she was pissed for the musical. Yeah, she 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 walked out between Act One and Act Two when they did the play in the eighties. You'd have to. I mean, you'd have to be a complete just like realize what they're trying to to um right. So basically, so basically, what they did is to Florence is it is that. Basically, they just sent they, they sent her luggage to the airport, and they told her that that's where. It, it, <laughs> you gotta go get your luggage. Pretty much. <laughs> you got you, probably better if you go to the airport and get your luggage. Back. No, it's not. Oh, it's not. <laughs> the best clip on the internet ever. We just decided we were going to move forward as a trio without her. You know that would be best for mm. us. <laughs> but but it just goes to show you the other thing about. Going back to Greg's DZ comparison, the, there is a there is a a calculated ruthlessness. I mean, mind you, that was the nature of the record business anyway. Mm-hmm. But Barry yeah. was especially one day you're in one day you're out because because you sort of created this idea of this pseudo family that you know in the end you know you could just you know all of a sudden your your luggage is at the airport right and you're not okay. you're not, not, Wait you're not a second. anymore. So so piggybacking off of what you just said, right? Again, break so record business, we're chasing the money. We're like like whatever this family, this is just a this is just mm-hmm. a farce for for the public, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're following the money. So slipping just swapping one woman in, one singer in for the other, that's all that's all just part of the game. Now, mind you though, now my question to you is, is this <laughs> I mean, whose fault is this? I mean, you it's just everyone's said, fault. Like like wait a minute, because you just yeah. said that. Orange was fucking up. Well, also because she had undiagnosed depression that stemmed from when she mm-hmm. was sexually assaulted as a young child. And also because of the fact that she sees that she's she being was... becoming so ir- irrelevant back. in her own group as let's well. Let's go back. We have to always remember, you know, these are not just business moves. These are all anti-black ass things that were done to folks and that has mostly, you know, harmed them. Right. Same thing with that had, uh, went down with um, Paul from the temptation with right. alcoholism. Right. Paul Williams became an alcoholic on the road because of the stress and everything, but also because David Ruffin was rubbing, was like making him irrelevant in his own group. And, right. You know, like that eventually led to his own demise. Anti-blackness never saved nobody. And, and Barry Gordy, and, and I'll be, and I'm, you know, everybody knows that's how I end up on this show. I'm the biggest Motown junkie. I love me some Motown. I love me some Barry Gordy, but you have to also recognize the anti-black shit that he did in order to create his oh, of course. company Absolutely. and how it harmed so many people. And it emotionally harmed most of them artists. Yeah, Motown was marketed, it's important to know, as the sound of young America. There's no young black America. addition to that young America. America. He wanted white teenagers to listen to it, and they did. And I mean, so so basically, if, if this was, if we had the technology and the social media of back then, right? Let's say, let's say we, you know, we we got time machine and we brought all the technology and we put it in that that era, right? Mm-hmm. Would would this be the era of canceling Barry Gordy? Is that probably he'd have? have to be canceled at some point once Florence yeah. Ballard got on TMZ or on the Oprah once show? Once he started whatever. Twitter Twitter ranting, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, because the funny thing is, Florence, <laughs> like Florence, just imagine, that, that, just imagine that Florence Ballard going on Twitter. <laughs> Honey, that Barry, that little short Barry Gordy. This nigga, this nigga Barry Gordy, and put me off the stage. Guess I'm a little drunk. What? I'm an alcoholic now. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> right. But I mean, 
obviously full quietly, right? I assume that she made a big a big deal about it when when no, she when, didn't because she signed no, she a, a she non-disclosure agreement when she was fired in order to get her um, in order to get her money. She got paid one hundred and thirty thousand, like her share of the proceeds, and she signed non-disclosure, like uh, not really a non-compete, but she was allowed to go to another label, but she was not allowed she to use say the Supreme. The Supreme mentioned that she was a Supreme, right? So yeah. Ali, this is the part in Dreamgirls. Remember when Jennifer Hudson was drunk and she said yeah. that she was gonna tell you, remind me to tell you later about how I went through a million, a million, half dollars a million dollars, drinking. In, yeah, drinking. Yeah, so that, Florence Ballard fell into like you know alcoholism. She tried to record on her own, didn't work. Eventually. Like, um, she, you know, went on welfare and everything. There was a point in 1975, I believe, she was at the, um, some place and she slipped and fell on some ice and she won a settlement from that, from the injury. And so she was going to get herself back together, but she ended up having a heart attack in early 76 and passing away at the age of 32. She was only 33, I think. 32. Yeah, yeah. So when you, watch, when you watch Effie and Dreamgirls, they made a con... When they did Dreamgirls, they made a conscious decision not to let Effie die. Yeah, because like in the, in the first did. draft, she did die. And they were mm-hmm. like, let's give this person, a, this character, a happy ending instead. Yeah. yeah. But all that other stuff, uh, that, all that stuff that was in there, that, that was her story, basically. Yeah, but here's in Dreamgirls. Isn't that controversial in Dreamgirls to have her come back in the end and and join hands with them on stage and people? Well, it must people be like Disney Child won't do it. People like that. Like I think people like that as a happy ending for somebody who didn't get it. They like that as a proxy thing. Was, I don't think it was a controversial. It was, yeah, but it's like well, it wasn't controversial, but it, but it rubbed people the wrong way because they were saying like, oh, you've you've hewed to the story pretty much to this point, and now you've Deviated. Yeah, don't try to retcon satirical history. <laughs> don't, be like, I mean, don't be like, oh, this is no, this is not how it happened, but wouldn't it be nice if they all made up in the end? Mm, uh, that's basically, well, that, well, Dream Girls that, had that dramatic and, license, though. Yeah, and you have to understand something. I, I was when this when I'm 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 like in my twenties when Dream Girls out, and it was there was a lot of hubbub about that, right? It was. It wasn't clearly. It was no social media stuff like that. People like saying, "Yeah, but here's where you veer away from the story." Because mind you, uh, Florence had only died like about four or five years before. Right. Because this is the 80, so, 81, was, 82. The, but the thing about it is that the movie made it worse, and the movie made it worse in that it added in visuals and things that so, were not in the play. Yeah. So but Ali, were very Motown. Do you remember the part in between the acts where they show Beyonce watching that reel about the, the dreams, his career, and they show all the albums they recorded? Two thirds of those albums are actual real Supremes albums where they have first chopped out Diana Ross in them and put in Beyonce and the other girls. Yes, it was absolutely. <laughs> and then, and then, okay, so and now, Brandon, you can correct me. Did, did, first of all, before I make my statement, did Dream Girls the book come first or the or the play? But no, it, it was never a book. It was it, always it, it was a it play first. A no, I'm talking. Well, um, I'm, t- I'm talking about um, Mary Wilson's book. Did that play come first, first or did book second? She named her book after okay. the play first, after book the second. Play. Okay. The reason I asked that is because the other thing that really just rankled me was when they had that fake ass Rainbow Records thing that was supposed to be Motown 25 with the fake ass Michael Jackson. Yeah, Rainbow Jackson. 10. Oh Jesus! Yeah, <laughs> that pissed me off I'm so bad because they would they just started putting that unnecessary shit. They made they made a uh, Jimmy Early. Now suddenly he making a fake what's going on and all. I think y'all doing too much. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of Michael Jackson, that brings us to this point because yeah. the Jackson Five were like the last group of classic Motown era, more or less. Like um, okay, um, 
Uh, um, Brandon. Yes. So, wait a second. So, all right. So, because this this is really this is a, a Go ahead, interesting. Ask. Ask. Because Dreamgirls is you know the play um um came out like t- to me it's I understand the whole let's give it a a happy ending for the character who is clearly a stand-in for Florence. Yes. Right. But it's like you're kind of, I feel like you're kind of dishonoring her by not showing the giving you the moral of the story in terms of like what you should not do if you were truly that is that is a take that people have. Like I, that's probably why I think somebody ought to just bite the bullet and make a Supremes movie. And you know, here's my other problem. My other problem with this is is because Beyonce is in this movie, they didn't want to clearly make her a villain. As a matter of fact, her character is rewritten from the play. She's a lot meaner in the play when Shirley this Ralph played her. Yeah. It makes it seem like she's just somebody who's just, oh, I didn't know any of this was happening. That's exactly I'm... what they did. because they, they wrote that, they wrote I... that part for Beyonce. They gave her that damn song that listens. No, 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 no. So I'm not, I'm not... That is horrifying! <laughs> I, I am not a, no you no Brad no I'm even more pissed off with this movie no <laughs> no wait, wait 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 Ali Ali now you see why Brandon feels the way he feels about Dreamgirls right uh, it's very complicated mm-hmm. I I he love it and it. I yeah, and I, I, I have and I have so many qu- problems with it so. <laughs> exactly Brandon you didn't explain the history I know I'm talking to everybody here you didn't go you didn't go that deep. This is a problem. That whole movie. <laughs> and, and, and also think about this, Ali. Now, there's a couple of things about them giving Beyonce that daggone blasted song. Number one, number one, it sucks. Number two, number two, the point was to try and get Beyonce and an Oscar. Oscar. But it sucks. Right. That's number two. But number three was their attempt, like, they knew anybody who's ever seen Dreamgirls knows that Effie is the star of Dreamgirls. Right. But they wanted Beyonce to be the star, but Beyonce can't be Effie. So they knew that Jennifer Hudson would end up being the star. Everybody loves, and I'm, you know, and I'm telling you, you can't get away from that song. But they gave her this song to try and Shirley Ralph never had from, a hit single. Right. Right. But they t- they gave Beyonce this song to try and take the shine off of Jennifer Hudson, which mm. really didn't work. It didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work. Because here's the deal: the lyrics of 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 Listen. Oh no. No. No, I can't. No, I can't even. No, I can't defend this. I can't. <laughs> Brandon defend. did. Brandon did. Sayida Gear right? Listen. You're not no, innocent. Um, some some white people wrote. Listen. Because anybody who know me, anybody You're who know me know that I hate Sayida Garrett. Woo! I hate her. Hold on now. Hey, hold on. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I do. What did Sayida Garrett do to you? Hey, <laughs> I just, you know what? For some reason, I have never Charlie. just liked that lady. I. I I can't. I'll leave. We'll mention Saida Garrett later. Um, uh, to explain who she is and relate to Motown. Um, oh my okay. God! No. I, I, I just want to just... say one little thing here. Um, it's interesting. A, little, a couple of minutes back, you mentioned the idea of social media being around back in the time of Motown. Motown. Yeah. And I'll tell. I'll give you a little anecdote. So I won't say where I work, but in my job, it involves having to deal with, I guess you could say, celebrities and VIPs. So I'm like a tr- a tech trainer and train these people. So that's why I've worked with Stevie Wonder. And when I first started the job 11 years ago, I, you know, Diana Ross worked, lived right across the street from my job. It's the Sherry Netherland, 21st floor. It has the whole floor. Mm-hmm. 
she got that in the divorce settlement with Arne Nass, who was her whatever, whatever, last husband. And she used to come to the store for training. Do you know what it's like to sit in a room with Diana Ross teaching her garage band? <laughs> and have her say, like, oh, oh my God. What does this button do? And have her say the following. Boy, could you imagine if we'd have had this back then, how many hits we could have had? I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here with... No, How many no, more hits can I you have, have Miss Ross? No, Brandon, I don't have no time. No, Brandon, I don't have no time for this one because I have a few, few things to say. So, first of, <laughs> first of all, no, it's one of the no because you got away with way too much anyway back in the day. Exactly. Auto tools, you're not still getting do. away with shit. Auto tools ain't even created yet, and you're getting away with it. My God. How are you gonna sit there with dollar signs in your in your in your eyes? No, looking at Garage Band. No, oh, Jesus. But you no. know what the funny thing was? She didn't say it with an edge of. She was just literally thinking about like the logistics. Like, wow, this could have really helped us. I'm thinking like, you didn't need the help. <laughs> you did I mean, not. Technically, did not. you need. You had all the help you could possibly get, but that. Oh was my God. Thing. But she was literally. What you all had just explained to me, like everything was lined up. For Diana Ross, right? Yeah, it was. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Because I've, I've got to mention, of course, in 65, her and Barry Gordy started dating. Right. So she mm-hmm. came in. So basically, she came in like, like, like a wave, right? Literally, then, anything that went wrong, if if somebody r- arranged an arrangement she didn't like, if somebody told her to do a step she didn't, didn't like, happen. it didn't happen. She would get on the phone and call on this is Detroit and get Barry Gordy. And it, whatever she wanted to get fixed would get fixed. Right, so basically... There's a reason why Brenda Holloway wound up not at Motown after a while. Right, so Brenda wow. Holloway was an artist they got from California. She was supposed to be the first California-based Motown artist. Um, Diana Ross didn't Beautiful like her. Beautiful woman. Beautiful woman, great singer. Great. Diana Ross didn't like her. Her career got slowed down, and she sort of kind of got dismissed in 67. No, no. Yep. Garage Band back there? <laughs> G- garage Band? No. Diana Ross was already a, a wave back then. Uh, garage Band? Add that to Garage Band? No, you're a, you're a tsunami. No. <laughs> exactly. No. Right. Chill. But yeah, so... She was just using... Was one of the weird, she just used that out loud. And I, 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 I looked at a non-existent camera like I was Mr. Roper on Three's Company. And Company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I need I actually need um I gotta um run real quick so I'm be come right back, but um I guess Greg be probably like um well Greg or Carolyn, one of y'all um explain or or yourself all three of y'all explain in um kind of briefly the Jackson Five coming to Motown in 68, 69. I'll be right back. Carolyn, you take that one. Okay, so, and that, Greg, you know, fill in, because, you know, sometimes my history get confused with the Jackson 5 movie. So, <laughs> the Jacksons were a family there from Gary, Indiana. Um, they consisted of the parents, uh, Katie and Joseph. May he rest in eternal, or maybe not heaven, just somewhere in the middle. Um, <laughs> Joseph was, <laughs> Joseph himself was a musician who never really did nothing. Um, he worked in the steel mill. He had a band called the Falcons who played l- at night. But, I mean, they were just basically a local band. And I'm sure there was some other stuff that I'm not going to remember because it's not important. Um, so when he would work at night, the boys would take out his guitar and they would start playing. And the mama wouldn't tell because Joseph was already an abuser. So one day, Tito, the second most talented member of the group, 
because I love me from mm-hmm. Tito. Now that I'm now that I'm old enough to like really like hear Tito, like yeah, um, broke the daddy string, and that's when he came home and discovered that the boys had been singing and playing with his guitar, and he turned them into a group. At that time, it was only the Jackson Four. It was Tito, Jermaine, Marlon, and who am I listening to? Jack. Um, later on, um, the little one, the five-year-old Michael, would perform in a talent contest. He would sing the song Climb Every Mountain, which was in what? What was that? Sound of Music? And uh, then, of- was it Sound of Music? A lot it, more than I, I was, know. Yeah. Come on. I think it was, <laughs> so, yeah, Sound of Music. So he would perform in this group, and that would be his way of convincing Joseph to let him into the group. So Joseph started taking them around, you know, to different bars, performing. Of course, they're too young and not supposed to be performing, but I mean, it's the black community in the 60s, and, you know, they letting them in. Um, they start doing more talent shows, and eventually they caught the eye of Tommy. What's Tommy's last name from Cheech and Chong? Uh, uh, Tommy, Tommy Chong. Tommy Chong. Yeah, it makes sense. They caught the eye of Tommy was, Chong. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. And it gets confusing. Now, wasn't he a member of Bobby Taylor in the Van? He was a member of Bobby Taylor in the Vancouver. Tommy in the Chong? Vancouver's, right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and this is where the story gets a little bit confusing because Motown had fifty thousand different stories that went around over the years about how the the Jackson Five was founded. The story they put out into the public was that Diana Ross saw them randomly somewhere at and some, she loved at some them. Um, thing in Gary, some like some local, yeah, whatever. Or whatever and that she brought. And there's them to alternate Motown. stories about like Warren Pete Moore and Gladys also being involved in this. Yeah, Gladys that was, was involved early. Too. Gladys saw them at the Apollo and said, "Bury your side He said, "No," and that was that. And then a year later is when Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's brought them to Motown mm-hmm. physically. So, they, so they bring him to Mo- They bring him to um, Barry's mansion in Detroit where they perform at this big Motown pool party. Right. And, did, and did you then, mention before that they auditioned at the studio on tape? Oh, yes. If you are a real Michael Jackson fan, you have seen the audition. You know it by heart. I know all the stuff. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's in the documentary. It's in a documentary. Like, they auditioned on videotape. Like, they had just bought a, a TV camera. Because Suzanne DuPass was adamant right. about and getting then, them to audition for... I forgot, I'm sorry for thank you, Brayden. I forgot all about that. Suzanne DuPass was adamant about getting them to audition for Barry. Barry did not want them. He had too much trouble with Stevie Wonder as it was. Right, child labor laws and everything for, like that. Right, so Suzanne DuPass convinced him to give her a slow no instead of a fast yes. Yeah. That might have just been in the movie. And so- Barry's mansion, Barry's <laughs> mansion at this time was also located in the Boston Edison district of Detroit, yeah. Of, of Detroit, Detroit, which was more starting to be the affluent black area where a lot of black people who had money started to collect and live in. Right. Right. And Is so- this the part where you want to pick up Brandon? Yeah, like so th- so they developed okay. them for a year and they decided we're going to because Bobby Taylor became their producer. He recorded a whole album for them, yeah. and they decided they didn't want anything that he had done to blast the singles. Because one of the things he did record was that famous cover of "Who's, Who's Loving, Loving You." Who's Loving You? Yeah, right. Because yeah. like, which was incredible. Yeah, in the documentary, Smokey jokes about how when he sings that song now, which he wrote, and it's hit. It was a miracle song first. When he sings the song, now people are like, why are you singing a Michael Jackson song? Because, <laughs> you know, Ali, I know you've heard Michael, um, the Jackson 5 singing Who's Loving You. Or at least seen the video from the Ed Sullivan show with the purple hat. Right. I I don't remember the, the video, but I do remember the song. Right. Mm-hmm. 
You have you have to see the Ed to me. I mean the the recorded version that's nice. You have to see the Ed Sullivan stripped down version because he's singing that it was live. Just like yeah. raw. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was yeah. raw and amazing. Right, it was a talented little kid. They were all talented kids. Michael Jackson was a like exceptionally talented youngster. He no, really was. no, no, no. Pause for a second, I, because I want to keep up with the technology too. Right. So again, at this point in music history, in terms of like, you know. You know what we can and cannot do. No, there's right? no auto tune. <laughs> the no, boy can actually sing. The boy can. <laughs> Michael just sang. That, but it's like, how much help is he is is the, the group getting? Oh, well, you a little bit sing? because they were still children. It's not that they couldn't well, sing. Yeah. Is that like you know like well, they would forget the lyrics and they so what? So what happens is that they decide, Barry Gordy decides he's going to move this group to California and develop them there because he had his idea he was going to move Motown to California, which he would do in three years. Um, he'd already moved there. Diana Ross had already moved there. Or at least bought houses there. Mary Wilson and them had already bought houses in um, Cal- in Los Angeles. And so right. they, moved, the, they moved the Jackson the big- children into, into Barry and Diana's houses out there in California and they record a song called... Bad Move. Um, yeah, they recorded uh, Yusef. <laughs> they record a song called uh, "I Want You that's, Back." That's a whole other story. That's a whole other story. I don't even think like, it's, on, look, it's on sale everywhere. <laughs> I'm, such a, I'm such a fan. Yeah. Like, I got me knowing. It's Here's on sale first release of Motown. It's on sale it's everywhere. On sale everywhere. <laughs> that was when they were on the Hollywood Palace. Their first, not, not their first yeah. TV appearance. That was on the Miss Black USA pageant. Their first, the one that white folks saw. That's what so they called the first. Was the Hollywood Palace uh-huh. in um, late 1969 when they performed. Um, they lip sync to "I Want You Back." They sung the rest of their stuff live, but Barry Gordy said, "No, play the record so they could hear it." <laughs> so, and, and Diana was but, the host you know on that episode of Hollywood Palace, and yeah. that was how she introduced, quote unquote, introduced them to the world. Right. Yes, and and the other thing is that to, to sort of elaborate on what Ali was asking about in terms of help they got, the biggest help they got was the fact that. You know, when you saw them live with the instruments, understand something. They did not play that in the studio. They were they were not yeah. a group. They could play. They but weren't. They, could not they play weren't the studio they quality the players. Yeah. they weren't. It was technically the second iteration of the Funk Brothers, the West Coast version of the Funk Brothers, that folks like Wilton Felder. Yeah, Wilton Felder playing like the the, the, the the bass parts and stuff like that and everything. Right. Uh, really? Wait, 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 stop. Hold up, hold up. Yeah, hold Wilson hold up. Felder plays the bass on all the Jackson Five hits. Yes. Wilson Felder from the Crusaders? Yes. 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 Now I was I was gonna actually bring up that same thing that you said brought up about the about them, you know, playing on stage, but at the same time, you still have to recognize these were young, young kids who I mean they for kids. They, they were good for kids. Fucking good. They could play. Yeah. Jermaine Jackson's bass was bigger than he was, but he was playing it. He was playing it. <laughs> and, 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 Tito, and you got you got Tito, Tito holding down that rhythm section. Oh Jesus! Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Was Jermaine the guitarist or the bassist? I'm sorry, did I mess that up? No, you're right. Okay, Jermaine was the bassist, <laughs> big ass bass. But right. the thing was that to ensure a the, to keep the assembly line going and, and to ensure a homogeneity of sound and whatnot. Yes, the Funk Brothers continued to play on the the the, the, the studio tracks the same way like with Junior Walker and the All Stars. You know, the only in studio, the only All Star that was in there was Junior with the rest of the Funk Brothers. On right. the road, it was a different band. Right. Yeah. And so they would sound. So that different. was that was the help that the J Five had. But in terms of like auto tune, no. Nah, I will say was, I, I was going to say was, though on I'm sorry. Um, yeah, like, I, I was going to say on I want you back. That song 
if the vocal track on that song is in patches because like they kept changing yeah. the lyrics as they were recording it and they had to, and the kids yeah. it was their first time doing a song that important. So there was a yeah, lot of like the- punches and edits and splices in that song. But I feel like personally speaking, as far as like quality and everything, that's probably the best debut single any any artist has ever had on a major label. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> no, yeah. It, it, uh, it, it, if I may go into my Arsenio Hall uh, coming to America, but he lied. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so the Jackson I, 5... I want to go back to this West Coast Funk Brothers thing you mentioned. Who actually was yeah. in the West Coast iteration? Um, So at, at, uh, playing the piano was Freddie Payer, because of course mm-hmm. uh, Barry Gordy yeah. established what was called the corporation who wrote and produced yeah. the Jackson 5 mm-hmm. hits. Freddie Payer and Barry Gordy himself, um, Deke Richards, who was a white guy, and um, Alfonso Mizell from the Mizell Brothers. Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. and me, I'm gonna look at the so, Wikipedia. I want you back. I'll read and, the rest and, of them. You know, you the, the only it. thing that Barry did that better for them than he did for the Funk Brothers, they are actually credited on the songs as the corporation. I'm like the Funk Brothers who never really got yeah. collective right. credit. Wow. Right, so. And the thing was, the other thing was, is that uh, as uh, Brandon was probably about to mention about, I guess Motown having established that that headquarters in Detroit, and eventually with Barry having his aspirations to go beyond that into television with the TV specials, like, you know, the Diana special, the and TCB and all like that kind of stuff. LA, was where the action was, he'd then eventually, I mean, the, 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 the big Motown, Motown was only like a super conglomerate in Detroit for all of like about two years, about a year and a half, really in that big building in downtown Detroit before they moved to Los Angeles. And what they did was, uh, even if you remember in the other documentary, Staying in the Shadows of Motown, the Funk Brothers said you know, those guys, those cats couldn't afford to get up and just pack up and leave and, and move away. Their families were all there in Detroit. They couldn't all go there. Some of them did go and travel, but for the most part, a, a an entire West Coast group of Funk Brothers would come into play uh, above and beyond just the Wrecking Crew. So that's when uh, they talk about how so- Barry just picked up and left Detroit. He left a lot of I mean, Motown was still going in Detroit. But he left yeah. a lot of folks in yeah. Detroit with, with gigs. He and left the heart. Gigs yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get to that in a quick second. I did want to just really quick before we do that, I talk. So the other people in the West Coast version of the Funk Brothers who did the Jackson 5 hits was um, Lewis Shelton and um, Joe Sample, who's also in the Crusaders, wasn't he? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, Clarence Street McDonald. The, the funny, the funny and, part is thinking about Wilton Felder playing bass. So that's not his instrument. Well, he was a multi-instrumentalist and a damn good one. Right. Because he played um, flute and stuff as well. Um, Gene Pellows mm-hmm. on the drums and Don Peak, and so those are some of the people who were over there. Uh, so the Jackson Five, of course, yeah, you know, right? um, had you know gigantic number one hit, but their first single, and so they had a couple more as well. They had ABC, the Love You Save, I'll Be There. They had a um, they the got Love a, You Save is my all time favorite J Five song of all damn time. That, that to me is one of my favorite performance songs. Yeah, I, I, I love watching performance songs. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, they, um, Barry Gordy, like, the reason why he moved to um, L.A. in the first place, moved to Detroit, L.A., was getting the TV and movies. And so, like, in addition, like, they had TV specials established for Diana Ross, The Supremes, and The Temptations, like TCB and GIT on Broadway. TCB! Yeah, the Diana special. Business. It was a Temptation special, a Smokey Robinson special. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Jackson uh, 5. And the Jackson 5 special going back to Indiana. And then the Jackson 5 had their own cartoon show produced by Rock and mm-hmm. Boss over in the UK. Rankin, Rankin Bass. Rankin Bass. And, later, and remember, <laughs> later on, they had their own variety show for a minute. Yeah, they had a variety show in the 1976. Yep. Um, 
and that was and that, that was when Carol Burnett basically went because she lived down the street from them in Encino, and she was like, they were already big stars, and, she, and when she was going to go on her semi hiatus from the Carol Burnett show, she goes, she pulled rank. She says, give them my slot for these five weeks. Right. And, okay. And let me. They I got a question for Brandon. Yes. Okay, because this is gonna be slightly messy. Um, <laughs> the character Rosie in the Jackson Five animated show is that the snake? Related? Yes. Is it related? That's to Michael any... Peck. I know, but is it related to any real person in their history? Oh. I don't think so. It's a snake. Oh. <laughs> just, it's you know. a cartoon say that don't talk. <laughs> and Greg is hearing exactly. <laughs> I'm just so, curious. But, but yeah. who would it be? But the Rosie character was the Rosie character was heavily emphasized because at that time in the in the teen mags like you know Teen Beat, Tiger Beat, uh, and and later on Right On and so on, uh, there was that whole thing about Michael and his pets, and that was his whole big right. thing. So that was actually done as a direct tie-in to basically keep that sort of thing going. There, right. the idea of the the snake and the mice and all the way. It, it, it was it, part it was of his whole, image. Also, oh, it was part of his friendly. image, Didn't you so they actually that? folded that directly in to relate back to the way about the publicity behind Michael. Right. Got it. Got it. Also, Brandon, didn't you say that uh, isn't didn't that just work out coincidentally perfect? Because at the time, a lot of the animated stuff with kids in them, it's cool. It's good to have a pet, like yeah, little, like, like, like Scooby Doo and the Jack and um Josie and the Pussycats and all yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. They knew exactly what they were doing. Incidentally, really quickly, because we're from Brenda Holloway. Josie and the Pussycats, the lead singer of most of their songs, is Patrice Holloway, her younger sister, who recorded, I think, mm-hmm. three or four Motown songs when she was in her teens. Uh, but yeah, so the Jackson and, Five. Go ahead. And guess who one of the background singers for Josie and the Pussycats was? Uh, Sherry Moore from uh, Charlie's Angels. Sh- Sh- Cheryl Ladd. I mean, not, not yet. Yeah, Sh- she was called Sherry Moore then, but she, yeah, she's Cheryl Ladd now. Yeah. Yeah. Came Shut Angels. up. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, she wasn't even wow. a backup. She was backup, and she sung some leads, too. Thanks on the leads too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so Jackson Five are coming a Small big world. hit. Um, at the same time, Barry Gordy has decided that Diane Ross will be a movie star. And like, <laughs> you know, like, and he and she will bring, you know, the rest of them into movies as well. So they decided Diane Ross is gonna play Billy Holiday in a biopic in a biopic called Lady Sings the Blues. Um, which they now, get can I can I can I, can I, I again being an old that did not actually go over well with black folks. Oh yeah, yeah. At the time. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it really Billie didn't Holiday go over well. and Diana Ross, nothing in common besides being singers. But that's it. Um, different looks, different genres, different styles, different singing abilities, different everything. <laughs> but the crossover thing happened because the, of course, you know, she was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress for that, mm-hmm. and that she had the crossover thing where oh, she did this. yeah, it was a really great performance. The black folks is like nah. I, I mean, I remember arguments in my house about that. Lady Seems the Blues is yeah, not a father, good movie. My father was like, yeah, my, and you know what the worst part movie. about it? Even though I love the movie, the worst part is that fight scene where, where uh, Richard Pryor get killed. That's get up, piano man, yeah. get up! Get up, piano man, get up! Piano man, piano man. Yeah, but I mean, she... No. She was she was in it. She got nominated for an Oscar. They thought, okay, we're off yeah. to the races. Um, 
And mm-hmm. so they made a second movie at Motown, um, called Mahogany, starring her, Billy Dee Williams, who, who was also in Lazings the Blues, and Anthony Perkins from Psycho. That movie is even worse. Did you see my post about that two days I ago? I did, I did, I did. I, I, I sort of lurked through because, like, I wanted to see what the reaction was. We, we tell people that Mahogany is a bad movie. Sometimes they get really defensive. They get really defensive. They love that damn crazy-ass <laughs> movie. <laughs> But in the movie, in the, in the post, they actually said it's a it's a bad it's a, it's a it's a bad movie that you can't not appreciate. you can't not watch right. It's yeah. like a train wreck. Yeah, I had to watch it because you see what you see what all the, the the money was. They wrecked a Ferrari in the movie. Yeah, they wrecked a a. a but some of the, it's one of those things. So many of them movies are just good, you know, good camp. Yeah, like, mahogany yeah, is like good when, camp. Yeah, like, <laughs> like when, when, when Mahogany gets to, uh, when Diana gets to Paris, wherever she gets to, and she sees the black man on the street, and she's like, hey, hey, say brother. And then he walks away, oh, no, he ain't no brother. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I just want my own man back. <laughs> and, and the weird thing was, they do this movie, the reason why I, I mentioned this is because it was two days ago here on Channel 9. God is my witness on Channel 9 here in New York. On WR, I, flipped, I said, is this mahogany? This must be a document. No, they it's mahogany. mahogany. They're playing mahogany end to end. Directed like by Hall. Barry Gordy I, I, Jr. I like how I like how in this you're literally creating them. You you really repeating the meme. The meme is that is that mahogany? <laughs> <laughs> and so, but mahogany as bad as it was was a big hit, and so they moved on to the third Motown production, which was The Wiz, an adaptation of the Broadway play. Hey. Um, and Diana Ross. Well, we, I, I'm going to say before we even get into this, I'm not going to hear no blaspheming Brandon of The Wiz. The Wiz no. is a great, it's, it's a good Broadway play. It's not great, it's good. Stephanie Mills did a phenomenal job. The Wiz motion picture that Motown produced for Universal Pictures. Probably it has its not, fans. Yeah, but I mean, it's The Wiz. It has its, it's fans. It's The Wiz. It's The Wiz. <laughs> And then it's Brandon, the damn Wiz, okay? You got the model from That's My Mama. Dude, what are you going to see how to give a sign That's My Mama? It has its fans. If you lie, you know how, I'm, I'm, I'm Carolyn, I'm going to say this. <laughs> Carolyn, yes, Carolyn, yes. What? But I'm going to just help you pull it together, sis. Okay. We love America, but we can criticize America. Okay. <laughs> okay? Stop. On, on Stop. that note... Wait, okay. hold on. Moving on. It is important for the historical. I actually <laughs> have to go because we are going to record the C Dub show and I need to talk to people that have good sense. Just to let you know, <laughs> <it> is- <laughs> today we are recording the first anniversary episode of the C Dub show. We are talking about Jay Z and NFL. We are talking about Tony Morrison passing away. We are talking about Hot Girl Summer. But the most important thing we are talking about. Popeyes versus Chick Fil A, so stay I tuned. need y'all all to. I need y'all all to stay tuned. They, I, I, look, when we finish, y'all probably still be. Y'all probably got the Rick James by the end. So, <laughs> so I'll try and log back in then. Hopefully, we don't Bye go everybody. quite that long. But thanks, Carolyn. <laughs> and check out the show. God is gonna spite all of y'all because y'all 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 done done chased off Carolyn, and I'm upset. Carolyn, Carolyn. Y'all didn't chase me. I'm still here. Well, Carolyn, when you when you talk about Chick Fil A, make sure you yes. mention that Chick Fil A is the chicken that don't love gay people. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna mm-hmm. mention that. All right, I've got to go, y'all. Bye. All right, bye, Carolyn. Thanks for joining us. All right, but yeah, but, we're, uh, we were talking about uh, movies, and so my, it's important to note for the historical record: The Wiz was a gigantic flop. 
and it brought yeah. to a end but, Mo, uh, Madai and Ross's movie career. Motown still produced other films. And, they did a Scott Joplin biopic. They later on did The Last Dragon. But they even the Motown production stuff kind of slowed down. They did a phenomenal movie after The Wiz that nobody received to remember. Bingo Long And the Travel All Stars. Stars. <laughs> That's an incredible film. But the thing, the other thing that happened was that the, the failure of The Wiz was there was a lot of things that happened with that. It was also came out at a, at a, at a very down economic time that mm-hmm. happened. The, the, the movie industry was actually changing in a very, very peculiar sort of way. Like, no musical that was put out then did Ex- well. Except Nothing. for Greece. I mean, musicals were already dying. Greece was the only everything, exception to Wait, was what, that? What's Greece. the movie again? You said Bingo Long and Greece the was the only one. Yeah. Yeah, was Bingo that? Long and the Traveling All-Stars is the movie he mentioned that Motown produced. Bingo Long, was... Traveling All-Stars, The Motor Kings. It was a movie, it was a period piece covering the time of the Negro League, starring, of course, Billy D. Williams, uh, James Earl Jones, and Ted Ross, who played the, the Cowardly oh. Lion in from The Wiz. Yes. Has it been uh, reissued? Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor, Stan Shaw. It's it's the production values on it. The movie is actually, I think, technically, technically, it may actually be the best movie, the Motown movie ever that was ever done in terms of getting things right and in terms of the, the evenness of the performances all the way across. Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor King. Look that one up. It's, yeah, I'm looking it's, at it's, it right really now. Cool. So it has been reissued, looks like. Okay. It, 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 was out of, it was out of print for a long time, but it, it's... So good, and it's it's the only movie about the Negro Leagues, and yet it's but it's, it really captures it. it really, captures it so, yes, it does. It's so good. Watch it all the way through. Watch the, there's a there's a funeral scene near the end. The funeral scene will crack you up. That's all I got to say. Okay, I will look the, for that. Thank it you. Is the, it is the funniest funeral scene in a in a movie ever done. That's all I have to say to you. Right, mm. but okay, yes. Motown was branching out into film and so on, and it, uh, and unfortunately, the Wiz kind of knocked it on its ass right about then. Right. So wait, this was this was after uh, Mahogany, but before the Wiz. Yeah. Yes, nineteen seventy six. Concurrent. Yeah. It was oh, wow. to be concurrent with it because Ted Ross was doing both films at the same time. Yeah. Right. Right. But this looks like this didn't get any life at all, and they gave all the didn't life get any it. life at all. Mm-hmm. Didn't get any life at all. Right. Interesting. It's, one of the best, it's also one of the best baseball movies ever done, too. To be quite honest with you. Really? Right. Yes. Okay. So during the 70s, so Motown officially moves to Los Angeles in 1972. They shut down Hitsfield. Some of the artists um, leave at this time. The Four Tops, they go to ABC Records. The Roger Reason and Vandellas, I think they tried to go someplace and ended up, you know, just sort of kind of breaking up. The Marvelettes left at this time. And they time. came back, yeah. Yeah. Um, who else? Um, the, I Gladys and the Pips went to Buddha. Yeah, Gladys and the Pips, they left and went to Buddha Records. And it had more hits there than they had in Motown. Because that's when yes, they had they um, uh, Midnight Train of Georgia and all like that. Because um, the Four Tops, when they went to ABC, they had a couple of hits. They had Ain't No Woman Like the One, Ain't no yeah, woman like the one I Got and Keep Her in the Castle. And uh, are you mad? Yeah, yeah, and then it mm-hmm. sort of kind of slid uh, down. Um, but Motown, you know, they tried to move forward. They had Diana Ross, who's recording solo by now. She had left the Supremes in 1970. They had um, Marvin Gaye, who just recorded "What's Going On." You mentioned before about the thing that happened with um, 
Mary Wells, when she turned 21 was emancipated, backtracking a bit, uh, both Stevie... Did the Stevie same thing. turned 21 in 1970, I believe it was. Marvin was already a grown-ass man, but of course, being married to the boss's sister, being married to Anna, yeah. there was he was operating under constraints. And then what happened is both those artists were able to then go do their passion projects, respectively. Stevie was uh, starting with, I think it's with the Where I'm Coming From album, moving on to uh, Music of My Mind and Talking Book, and then Marvin hitting with his, what? I guess you could say, his post-death of Tammy Terrell catharsis with what's going on. Right, because Tammy Terrell died in 1970, and Marvin sort of kind of, he didn't want to record anymore. He tried out for the Detroit Lions football team. He wanted to do anything but record music. He eventually recorded What's Going On because um, Obi Benson from The Four Tops and Al Cleveland brought it to him. Barry Gordy refused to release it, said it was the worst record he had ever heard. It sat on the show for a oh, year. Barry. They floated it out. It was a big hit. Oh, okay, do a whole album. And so he did the album, What's Going On, you know, one of the most important albums of all time. Um, one of the most perfect albums of all time as well. And and technically, according to a great many people, the first uh, soul concept album right. to a lot of people. Right, because like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think. I, I'm I'm wondering if the Isaac Hayes albums count, but no, I, I feel like what's going on they, has more they of a stronger were, concept. They were, they were long form, but they weren't technically concept albums right. per se. Is like they, they, there are other albums that was sort of like in terms of like a, just a point as far as a, a a through line. That one is probably the one that I mean at that time the thing that was happening in pop music was everybody was trying to do concept albums. You know, right. you, the Beatles had two years before had done Sgt. Pepper, and then you had. You know, uh, 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 groups like the Moody Blues and and um, um, oh gosh, why am I blanking on them? Uh, guys, it did. Uh, damn, it, I just I just blanked on it, but it was art rock and things like that were happening. So that started to bleed over into soul R and B. And yes, Isaac Hayes was doing that sort of thing, but Marvin's was the, the actual concept album about dealing with the stuff that was happening at the actual time. Because what's going on is about deal. the war. It's about the um, it's about the environment. It's about religion. Civil it's about unrest. everything that was sort of kind of, yeah, civil unrest. It's about everything that was affecting him and people like him at, in 1971. Uh, and so that sets him on a different career path, you know, like uh, he's grown a beard now, you know, like and everything. <laughs> so he's got a different style. And smoking everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he does the Trouble Man soundtrack, you know, which the movie's terrible, but the soundtrack's a hit. Uh, he does Let's Get It On, the album, which, you know, of course, is another classic album for him. Uh, then he falls into a little bit of turmoil, um, personal turmoil, because mm-hmm. um, he is dating, um, what is her name? Is, J- is Janice, what's her last Janice. name? What's her maiden name? Well, he eventually became uh, his second wife because he ended up divorcing Anna because he was cheating with Janice, uh, having an affair. And... Uh, in the settlement for the divorce, um, Anna is granted a certain percentage of the next album he records. Because he had just recorded um, I Want You as well. So he records an album called well, Hear the, My Dear in 1977. Yes. Which is basically like the a gigantic... Yeah. It's a gigantic fuck you to Anna Gordy. Where he's yes. telling all yes. the business on the album. Yes. And the interesting thing about it was he said that he, he wanted to... The, the story was that he'd been married to Anna for an eternity. and Because he was like the... The, the the pretty boy at Marvin at, at Motown, she wanted him and she had to have him. So she marries him. Anna was much, much older than, than, than Marvin was. Yeah. And they had actually fallen out of love like somewhat in, in the late 60s. He had fallen in love with Tammy, but and according to, this is the strangest thing, I 
people are still saying that that was not consummated. I don't know how that could possibly be, but I could see the reason being that if it was, it would have been a slap in the face to the boss and some gangsters probably would have punched his face out. So it, it didn't happen. Right. So he's in loveless marriage with Anna. Janice, who he meets when she's 16, 17. Quite young, yes. Um, falls in love with her, wants to then leave Anna and then is okay, well, here's what you're going to do. I'll, I'll, I'll actually use the title of the song. You can leave, but it's going to cost you. <laughs> uh, that was one of the, so he, he says you have to, or for you to get out from up under with this, the, the proceeds from this next album, technically the next two albums will be, goes straight to Anna to pay for the divorce settlement. And Marvin's okay, great. So he's going to do, like you said, the biggest fuck you to it. So he intentionally wanted to do a bad album, but in interviews after he says, I couldn't even bring myself to do that. I had to get this stuff out. So it became some weird, like primal screen therapy for him where he goes and he does right. this album. He pours everything. I like this. The, one of the songs in there, you can leave, but it's going to cost you. When did I stop loving you? When did you stop loving me? Uh, I mean, just, and, and the title for the, it's the musical LP equivalent of a Twitter rant. Basically. Yes. 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 It's, 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 uh, I mean, all the songs, uh, the title song here, my dear, I met a little girl talking about when he met Anna back in the day, anger, you can leave, but it's going to cost you. When did you stop loving me? When did I stop loving you? Good God. I mean, he just, he just, he just like basically just, you know, you know, stuck the knife into himself and poured the guts out. Right. And Barry was incredibly displeased about this because for one thing, it was putting family business out there. Right. And the album didn't do that well, but it eventually did do better. So uh, it didn't sell what it should have. So then he says, are right, you still owe us another one? And that's when the, in our lifetime album came out. Right. He, he says, okay, great. Do that. I'm going to go do cocaine for two and a half years. And then I'm gonna go sign with Columbia. Right. <laughs> but then interestingly enough, Anger was the only danceable single. And I think it was yeah. a, it was a redo of Funky Space Reincarnation. Reincarnation. Right? Yes, it was. Yeah. It was Funky Space in yep. Funky Space was Reincarnation song. was another song off of was that on here, my dear? Yes, it was. Okay. okay, Funky Space Reincarnation was like... Oh, I his, remember it now, yeah. Okay. That was one of his danceable songs that was on here, my dear. That would have been like the single that they pushed, sort but, of. Right. But Anger was the one that... Because Funky Space Reincarnation was like, that was a damn near nine-minute song. Uh, Anger was the four-minute thing that, that came out. Because at some point, Barry's like, we, we spent the money, we got to get something out of this. So... Uh, that comes out, and he and he and he goes and he does that. The other weird thing that happened—I don't know if you guys remember this—there were uh, Motown was pushing a group that was supposedly, and I think you probably remember who this is, Brandon, the New Supremes. And the, this New Supremes group was High Energy. Right. Uh, done, I uh, remember them. You can't. You can't stop turning me you, on. You can't stop. You can't. You can't turn me off in the middle of turning me on because that was a monster hit. But the thing is, Motown actually marketed them as the next Supremes. And the problem was, is that the Supremes were still signed to Motown. They had come back and he said, well, how do you want to say that? We're still here. Right. Because like at this time, which, like which is, Mary Wilson was the only original left and they were sort of, they were definitely struggling. I do want to like just make sure I yeah. finish up Marvin Gaye's story. You know, he signed a Columbia Records yeah, at Sexual Healing. It was a big hit. Um, 
and then sort of kind of hits a fallow period again. Um, he ends up moving in with his with his parents. Um, his father shoots him dead um, the day before his forty fourth birthday. Yes. Um, oh, so young. Yep. And so that unfortunately is the end of Marvin's story. Um, I, I just gotta make sure we move forward because we'll be here for five hours. By <laughs> um, yes, I know. Hey, um, Aretha's funeral can only match it. Yeah, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> um, um, in the 1970s became an even bigger bigger artist than he was in the 60s. He had a bunch of, you know, very popular albums that are still popular today, still revered today. You know, Inner Visions, Talking Book, um, Fulfilling this first, first finale. Fulfilling this first, fulfilling this first, the good album, as yeah. Eddie Murphy said it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, that, that, it, it it's the Holy Trinity. Yeah. Songs yes. in the Key of Life. You know, all, like these monster mm-hmm. albums about these big hits, single Superstition and um, Higher Ground and Sir Duke. You know, like all these songs that you everybody knows, like you know Stevie Wonder is basically keeping Motown af- afloat during this period. Albums so big that in seventy because they come they come out respectively in seventy two, seventy three, seventy four, in seventy five, Paul Simon puts out "Still Crazy After All These Years," and his his uh, Grammy speeches is, is, is a, he actually says, "I'd like to thank Stevie for not putting out an album this year because Stevie <laughs> had swept the yeah, Grammy." 72, yeah. 73, 74. And Paul Simon said, I want to thank Steve for not putting it out. Paul Simon was putting out some chiller stuff then, but he couldn't get through. Right. Yeah, I remember, so the one I year remember Steve seeing that. Yeah, the one, the one year Stevie doesn't put something out, Paul gets through. And then the next year, Stevie puts out the uh, uh, Songs of the Key of Life and takes it right back. Right. He's, he's winning album of the year every year he's putting out an album. He's doing damn good. And Stevie's like his hot streak ex- um, s- sustained itself deep into the, like the mid to late 1980s. You know, even like a little bit of 1990s mm-hmm. when he had Jungle Fever from the Jungle Fever soundtrack. You know, I, you know 80s hits. He like Do I Do and um, uh, gosh, I just called to say I love you and Part Time Lover. 80s was uh, also 30... Send One Your Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was off of Secret Life of Plants from 1979, which bleeds into 80. But you stop thinking about it. Stevie had a nearly uninterrupted three-decade streak. If you count when he starts at 62, 62, 72, 82, right into the 90s and whatnot, that's that's a ridiculous run. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you you circle back. But but again, that was him being emancipated and being able to have the ability to go in and do what he wanted. Right, because, like, it's important. Go ahead, go ahead. Because Stevie's not necessarily working under Barry's auspices at all. Stevie brings in his own people, Cecil and Margalef, to basically help uh, handle the, the, the mood production. Right. Uh, his and then and then puts together what I still say is probably the greatest background vocal group of all time in Wonderlove. Because at, at different times it featured respectively uh, Denise Williams, Minnie Ripperton, and Sarita uh, Sarita Wright. Right. Sarita Wright so, became so his first wife as well. Yeah. So the, probably the, the greatest like backing group ever, and Stevie's putting out he's he's carrying Motown because now while he's doing that the J- the Jackson Five and Seventy Six are basically transitioning out of Motown. Yeah, they, the Jackson Five and, fell off as Michael got older and his voice started to change. They did have yeah. one last hit with Dancing Machine, but but that wasn't enough to really sustain them. They felt like Motown was stifling them, and so they went to Epic Records in 1976. They left Jermaine behind because he had married Barry Gordy's daughter, Hazel, and so he couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. Um, And he stayed on and became a Motown solo artist. He had a little bit of success with Let's Get Serious and a couple of other songs. And eventually... A TV tune. Yeah. But while you're there, let me say this, because I've been doing my research on Jermaine. 
We and, can't, uh, Greg. We can't dig deep into Jermaine Jackson today. I'm so sorry. Well, just, 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 just real quick. Okay. I think Barry, Barry did Jermaine a deep disservice because Jermaine yeah. actually has a lot of great albums that never got noticed and were never mm-hmm. properly promoted. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a a universal problem for ton of artists during this period. Like when they moved to L.A., things started getting lost in the sauce a lot. There's a lot of unreleased songs from every artist who was signed to the label that was great stuff that they, they just frankly ignored. There's a whole Supremes album called Promises Kept done by the Gene oh, Terrell-led yeah. version that they never put out. They could have put out had a hit. Diana Ross oh. had a bunch of songs because like, she was recording songs and then doing movies and back and forth. And so her, her releases were inconsistent during the 70s. But, you know, she had hits like uh, her version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Touch Me in the Morning, Love Hangover, but they're like Last years. Time I saw him. Yeah, they're years and years apart, these albums that she's putting out. Mm-hmm. Um, David Ruffin, who after he got fired from the temps, he became a solo artist and had a little bit, couple of hits like My World Ended, My Whole World Ended the Moment I Left You and Walk Away from Love. And he had a whole album in 1971 that never came out until 2004. The David album. The David album. Like, there's a lot of... Because they're not paying attention as much to the music. Like, it's starting... Like, it's actually a scene in Dreamgirls. Like, the um, director's cut. The music is starting to suffer. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, and so... True. Yeah, because like, they're leaving music, more or less, variously more or less music in the hands of Barbie um, Ales, who was the president of Motown, who was this white guy who, who was handling the sales beforehand. And he's not paying as much attention to the music stuff as Barry used to when he had the time for it. And so, like, it's just sort of kind of falling off. Um, like, um, Smokey th- retired. Yeah, Smokey, Smokey quits the Miracles and retires. And then a couple of years later, decides he's going to become a solo artist and do Quiet Storm mm-hmm. and Cruising and all like that. Um, you had artists coming in, like you had Willie Hutch, who was a songwriter first for the Jackson 5, who became an um, a artist himself. He did soundtracks for the Mac and Foxy Brown and a couple of his own albums as well. And also The Last Dragon. And The Last Dragon later on, yeah. Uh, you had um, the Dynamic Superiors, who was a group fronted by a gay man, Tony Washington, who oh, performed in drag wow. from time yep. to time. Yeah. Shoe, shoe Shine. Eddie Kend- shine yep. used to cost a dime. Yeah, like Eddie Kendricks from The Temptations, he quit the group and um, he was recording his first solo album while he was still in the group. And I guess he didn't tell anybody. And, and Frank Wilson, who is actually the the one of the the great second generation Motown producers, there produced that album, the People Hold On album, the Boogie yeah. Down album, the and, and that that Eddie run from basically seventy one to about seventy six. People, if y'all folks need to don't just listen to the hits, listen to the albums. They are so beautifully produced. They are. But they again, are. It's the People Hold On album is amazing. The People Hold On album is. Please. Yeah. Yeah. The thing was though, the albums didn't sell until '73 when uh, Frank Wilson produced um, uh, "Keep On Trucking," which became a big hit for yeah. Eddie. And people consider "Keep On Trucking" to be the first disco song, or at least the first proto disco song, the song that set a template for these yep. long, danceable records that became, you know, more and more successful in the '70s. The problem is that Motown themselves didn't capitalize on disco. They sort of let yeah. it slip through their fingers, and Philadelphia International, which had the OJs and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and the Three Degrees, and um, and um, the Soul Train, the Soul Train theme song, they took that ball and ran with it, and became more relevant during this period. Even though, and, and, and with Boogie Down becoming like uh, basically the first disco hit, technically the first disco hit was from Eddie's the previous album on "Girl, You Need to Change Your Mind." 
because that was seven minutes, 11 seconds. It was incredible. But mm-hmm. Disco hadn't really, 72, it was like, the, it, it was kind of early for that yet. People, they circled back and picked that up and started playing that in the clubs after the fact. Okay. I guess it wasn't a hit when it first came out, but it, like, it grew later on, I'm guessing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Barry, yeah, exactly, but Barry, exactly. Barry wasn't paying attention to disco at all because Barry was trying to be a movie. Mode. Right, yeah, yeah. Like I would say Motown in general wasn't paying attention to disco at all, period. Yeah, but Motown didn't pay attention to it because they, well, I think you mentioned there were white people running it at this point. But, and just not just that, they were running on fumes, really. Like, you know, they're kind of spread thin. They're, they really, LA is not really working out for them. And so they're trying, but it's not. <laughs> Yeah, like they had some big disco hits in the late 70s. They had Love Hangover. They had Dummy Houston's cover of Don't Leave Me This Way. Yeah. You know, things like that. But, you know, like they missed the critical vote at the time where they should have jumped on it. And so, they, sure. like... Piece they, of trivia here. Mm-hmm. Who, do you know who the songwriters for um, uh, of um, I'm Gonna Make You Love Me are? They're, they're Gavel and Huff. Uh, so, there I'm Gonna you Make go. You Love 68. Me was the song that Diana Ross, The Supremes, and The Temptations recorded in the late 60s. And made are you serious? Of. Yeah. But it was not their song. The gambling upfield. Yeah, but they didn't write it for them. It was a cover of a song from, the, from earlier mm-hmm. in the '60s. Wait, hold Isn't that up. Interesting? Hold up. Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Hold up. Hold up. Gambling Huff wrote "I'm Gonna Make You Love Me" in the '60s. Yeah. For who? For D.D. Warwick, I think. Not for, yeah. not for Diane. Not for and... Dion Warwick. For D.D. Warwick. No, no. D. No, I know who D.D. Warwick is. Yeah. D.D. is the one who um. Uh, she raped. Yeah, somebody. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to explain, like, for the audience, also for Ali, who this is. Remember, people may not know who these people are. Yeah, Dee Dee raped somebody. I think. Jesus Christ, allegedly. I remember here. Yeah, allegedly. Yes, oh. but yeah, that was part of the story that came out as in the last. Yeah, I don't know anything about that, man. Um, well, I yeah. have to tell you later. But anyway, yeah. But yeah. So there was a bright spot in the late '70s. And that bright spot was Rick James. Rick James mm-hmm. had come to Motown actually in the 60s um, with the Minor Birds, which was his band. Neil Young was one of the members who later became a star on his own as um, in, in rock. He's a white guy. Um, and Rick James, basically, it, it turned out he would have gone AWOL from the Army. Right. And that's when, so the Army's looking for him. And apparently the rumor, yeah. what happened? Saying, wait, you said he's on the run? <laughs> so basically he's on the run. Yeah, he's on the run. The rumor yeah. is that Barry Gordy turned him over to the Army in exchange for not having so many of his Motown artists be drafted during the Vietnam War. Oh. That's the rumor, which if you look at, nobody got drafted at Motown in the late 60s. Pete Moore had got drafted in the early 60s from the Miracles, but none of the rest of the fellas got drafted in the late 60s, early 70s when people were getting drafted for Vietnam. So could have happened. And so... Um, Rick James goes to military jail. You know, this is 1967, 68. And he ends up serving whatever time he needs to serve in the military. And he eventually comes back to Motown in the 70s. And with the Soul City Band, he starts having these big hits like You and I. Stone, Stone City Band. Stone City Band, my bad. Um, like You and I. And then later on, of course, Super Freak and um, Fire and Desire with Tina Marie, who became one of his artists. So he brought her to Motown as well. Tina Marie was, of course, a white artist. Um, she was the first. That's, that's not true, actually. What? The whole Tina Marie thing. He didn't bring her there. He didn't bring her there. He was, no, she, he was she was she was assigned to him when she got there. She was she was already signed, but Barry didn't know what to do with her, and she was with Motown for like two or three years doing demos. Okay, 
And Rick saw and, you know, they actually said, well, hey, Rick, why don't you try doing something with her? Right. And they brought Rick on to try to, you know, see what he could get with her. He was able to strike magic with her and get her on some of his records and then found out she had her own thing. And so they signed up Rick to produce her first record. And in the middle of producing that record, Rick figured out, well, damn, Tina bad on her own. So he let her do it himself. But, of course, Motown, being a company it was, did not want to let Tina do the stuff on her own. And instead of Rick not wanting to do Tina's second record, they hired Richard Rudolph, who was Minnie Ripperton. Minnie Ripperton. Right. They hired mm-hmm. Richard Rudolph to do Minnie's, uh, not Minnie's, but uh, Tina's second record. A young Maya Rudolph is actually on Tina's second record doing the voice part at the end in the interlude. Okay. It's just a little tidbit. For right. Me. Like, and so like, you know, she had a couple of hits in the early eighties as well. Like square biz is the key one. And she left uh, Motad in, in, in like the 83 or 84, 83 to go to Epic records at that time. Actually. And side note, uh, there was Tina actually sued Motown for her release because there was a problem where Barry had her under contract and would not put her records out. And there's actually a law on the books called Tina's Law where you cannot sign an artist and just sit on them for a while based on mm-hmm. what happened to Tina Marie. Okay. Because I know he did it other people in the 60s, definitely. So, yeah. Yeah. Good she to- was, yeah, she was the one that kind of stopped that because, right. you know, he was basically stifling her career. And to, Tina Marie was a... Oh, Jesus. She was, I mean, amazing. If right. you listen to those albums, you know. She, she's, the it, white, she's the white person that everybody agrees could come to the cookout. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because yes. they're not inviting Chris Clark, who was like the white woman they had signed most time in the 60s. Is it not Chris Clark? Chris Clark don't come to the cookout? No. <laughs> I, I want to know more about Chris Clark because I keep hearing about her. She can't sing. Oh, that's a... <laughs> She was very pretty. She was six feet tall. Barry, Barry, she, um, Barry Gordy was cheating on her, I mean, on Diana Ross with her. And when what? Diana would come yep. over to the house, he would hide Chris Clark, all six feet of her, in the closet. Mm-hmm. Oh, my Eventually, goodness. Diana came home one day and found, opened up the closet and found this white woman inside of it. And that's when oh. shit went oh. down. And they broke they up. Get this dusty Springfield-looking bitch out my house. Right. Did they? Did she throw things? I don't know. Things she threw get- things because she, she did tell Barry, like you know, she gave him ultimatum, like leave her and marry me or else. Because at the time, Diana found out that she was pregnant and didn't really want to tell anybody until she got like a marriage um, ring on her finger. Barry said no. They broke up. She married a white man, um, Silverstein, and had uh, Rhonda Ross, yeah. who is Barry Gordy's child. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Because I was going to ask you that next. Which one is the love child? Is Rhonda Ross? It's Rhonda. Yeah. Rhonda's the love child. Yeah. Because if you see her, she looks looks like her parents. Wow. And for the the record, yes, my sisters went to dance school, Bernie's Johnson Dance School in the, uh, here in in, uh, in, uh, Jackson Heights with with Tracy and uh, and Chutney, the other two daughters. Right. So that was, that was interesting with Diana's like limousine p- picking them up and dropping them off. But uh, she was very nice. She took at the end of, at the end of every cycle of, of training. She uh, had a big party for the girls at the dance studio. But yes, absolutely. That's what, that's what happened. So right. 
Chris Clark. And because Chris Clark was also being marketed to a certain degree as, okay, they were like, oh, there's a Dusty Springfield idea. Well, we're going to get a Dusty Springfield. Right. There's a white chick that could sort of sing a little bit of soul music, too. So, it didn't and quite Barry work was out. into that. Uh, Chris no, Clark, did, did, however, yeah. did get an Oscar nomination because she helped co write the screenplay for Lady Sings the Blues. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow. She ended up marrying Ernest, Ernest Tidyman, the white man who wrote Shaft. Say what? They were two wiggers in love. <laughs> a, white, wait, a white dude wrote Shaft? Yes, Ernest Tidyman. He wrote the novel Ernest and he wrote the screenplay for the movie. And y'all wonder where yeah. the hell Quentin Tarantino came from. <laughs> yeah. The shit? Ain't this a bitch? Sounds like as if it's when we let things slide and it just... <laughs> Wow. This is what tolerance causes. <laughs> Ali, come on down, stop. This, I mean, just imagining a white dude writing all that nigga, nigga, nigga language. Mm-hmm. I don't like, damn. Yeah. It's a little disturbing, Brandon. You don't find that disturbing at all? You're just going to... I mean, you'd be surprised <laughs> people have to write in Hollywood. Um, so I'll just leave that at that. But... It was 1971. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, the Motown story in the 80s, they're sort of kind of, you know, starting to struggle even more now at this point. Um, they have... They They've s- become basically an oldies label and a reissue label. Right, because they start doing reissues at this time to try to bring in some revenue. The new stuff isn't selling as well. They do introduce the Bards, you know, a new family of brothers and sisters who, you know, like, um, basically try to replace the Jacksons, you know, with um, Eldabar singing lead. They have some hits like I, I Like It and... Uh, Love Me in a Special Way, and later on, Rhythm of the Night from um, The Last Dragon. Wait, um, wait, but you're, but you're glossing over a really good story here. What really good story? Barry Gordy's son snuck behind his back and recorded Somebody's Watching Me. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Like, um, we'll, 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 like- yo, we'll get to Rockwell when we actually do the playlist. We'll talk about him. Um, <laughs> but, like, so in 1983, in order to try to boost... Um, like um, company uh, sales and relevance, um, they staged the Milton 25 um, television special. I did not know that that's what it was for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so they try to like, you know, they bring everybody they can back, you know, like, um, um, so Miracles Come Back, The Four Tops of Temptations, The the Supremes. We'll get to that. And the the Jackson 5, of course, is where Michael Jackson did the moonwalk for the first time because he demanded to perform Billie Jean, his solo song from Epic Records. Not Motown, on Motown. Not on Motown. Uh, and because he's Michael Jackson, he got that. <laughs> uh, the Supremes reunion didn't go well when they were taping it. Diana Ross pushed Mary Wilson and they had to edit it out of the broadcast. Uh, really? Yes. Is that anywhere? Yeah. Oh, it's everywhere. Everybody, because everybody who was there saw it. Because, like, what the deal was that instead of staying behind her, like, five steps behind her like they used to back in the 60s, they decided they were going to stand right next to her and not tell her. Nope. And Does Diana wasn't have having that footage? shit, and she pushed Mary out the way. Does anybody have this footage? No, uh, Motown has it deep in the vault with a password. <laughs> wow! <laughs> inside oh, of a wow. inside of a box, inside of another box. <laughs> oh my god! We're gonna. I'm pretty Behind sure. We, if we put our heads together, I'm pretty sure we can acquire this footage. <laughs> wait, wait, th- wait, but you said, have you seen that? No, I haven't seen it, but uh, I. I- Seen it, but I know people that I know people that were there, and they say that that indeed happened. I have a friend of mine who was a stage manager for that, and they say, yeah, that happened. Oh the my. other sad thing that 
at Motown 25 was they did not acknowledge the Funk Brothers. Right. James Jamerson uh, bought a ticket from a scalper to attend this and sit in the audience. Yep. Didn't he yep. die shortly after that? Yes, he did. Yes, he sure did. Oh, my God, yes, no. Did. They didn't That's... acknowledge the Funk Brothers. I, I don't... They, they, they weren't acknowledged at all. Right. There were photographs of them in studio with, you know, with Eddie and Brian smoking pipes and stuff like that and everything, but there was no acknowledgement of that and that was a uh that was a that was uh that was that was pretty heartbreaking okay real quick so uh, and, and i might be jumping off track so please don't get mad at me brandon but m- what you mentioned about this so if that happened with motown 25 what made motown make it right with standing in the shadows of motown what they happened? didn't produce what? that motown did motown had nothing to do with that they like they they they, the they they were they got the money and gave them the licensed product to put it together. They didn't produce it. That was the independent they production. Make money off of that. James Jefferson's family, yeah. his son, and like they found investors to make that um that made that documentary. Shut. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Most time had nothing to do with that. Right. Because I everything I've it seen was, that about was not a the soundtrack, the deluxe edition, it's almost as if Motown yeah, because they have the, they have the rights to all the stuff, so they obviously they're gonna make money off of putting out the soundtrack and stuff. But it's literally yeah. like they like wow. James Jefferson's family put together the money for it. They got it produced, and they said, you know, we need to clear all the stuff. Motown cleared it all, and they became involved after it was finished and being released. Wow! Understand Motown? If if, if if to to bring things back full circle, back to the first Motown hit being money. That's what I want. <laughs> Motown, <laughs> Motown is incredibly good at capitalizing off of things. So that was a, a way to capitalize off of that because right around that time, that's when you started to see them going back in the vault and pulling out the right. alternate mixes. They actually put out like these these Funk Brothers compilations. There's all this crazy stuff down to uh, going back to the 80s. The movie that actually put the Motown stuff back in the public consciousness was The Big Chill. Yes. So I got to explain. Everybody... Like so, yeah, the Big Chill would come out in 1983 as a comedy. I forget who the stars of it are, but like basically, it's white. Uh, Glenn Close, um, uh, uh, Judd uh, Hirsch. It or not no? not no, Judd no, Hirsch. Glenn, uh, right, right. Glenn Close, Meg, Glenn Close, Meg Tilly, a young Jeff Goldblum, a uncredited Kevin Costner whose part was cut out. He was the corpse, right, in the movie. Like so, they're there. All, like, all you see is a corpse. They're at a winter like um, resort for a funeral, right? Is that what the plot of it is? And there's a point. Well, basically, where... they get together for the they get together for the Kevin Costner character's funeral, who you never see in the film, and they get together at one of them's summer home, and they all are reminiscing about all the fun they had back in the day, which was like the mid '60s. Yes. And a huge part of the Big Deal movie was the fact that it's basically a, an entire Motown soundtrack. Motown then puts out a series of LPs called Music from the Big Chill Generation. Like, they put about eight of these compilations out of the best of Motown off of that that makes them millions off of that. So that's the thing that Motown will do. They will make millions off of that. But the thing that put them back in the zeitgeist of that, along with the Motown 25 stuff that was happening concurrently, was that thing happening right there. That movie is starring other white folks. We're acknowledging the Brothers or anybody like that. Right. Wow. And so, like, 
even but even that doesn't stand up uh, long enough to stay in business as they were. And so Barry Gordy, I think in 1986, he signs a distribution deal with MCA Records and he sells his share of Motown to them in 88. The other part of Motown at this point was owned by Boston Ventures. So Motown... But Barry kept the the publishing. He kept Joe Beck. Yeah, Joe Beck is this publishing company that owned the copyrights to all the um, the song compositions. He kept that deep into like i think the 2000s before he finally sold it yeah he did yeah um but he's basically out of running the label at this point they bring in gerald busby at first uh and gerald busby ends up suing mca saying that they aren't giving the resources he needs to run the label he's, he's trying to have hits with these artists um the boys and today and it's not working out and the good girls and the good girls um and so oh, wow there's a rotating door of executives throughout most of the 1980s and early 90s, um, including Andre Harrell was there for a while. Because I know what you're about to mention. Um, and I don't know what I'm about to mention. They, they don't even talk about Steve McKeever being there for a hot second. Yeah, a lot of people. Oh, no, you about there. to mention Andre Harrell? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I did mention Andre Harrell. He like he was there. And he was he was gone, like because he had um, was in the MCA family because he of course had Uptown Records. As he moved from there to Motown, it didn't work out there at all either. Uh, Motown, they sued MCA, got and basically were bought by Polygram, which was you know like um, the company that also owned at the time the James Brown's um, catalog as well. When they were under Polygram, by this point they had Boys to Men was their big selling ticket by this point. Yes. They had the other 90, Michael Bennett. 90, 91, 92. Yeah, 91, 92. Oh, yeah. Um, like 90, from 91 to 95, is sort of kind of Boys to like big period where they have End of the Road, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye, uh, I'll Make Love to You, One Sweet Day, which is a Columbia release, but you know, still. Uh, all these gigantic hits that are taking over the pop charts, uh, which starts the boy band craze because record, other record labels see this and say, oh, we can do this with white people. And they designed the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and 98 Degrees for just Motown's other artists at this time. And Ozone. And Ozone <laughs> and all this shit. Um, so, yeah, Ali, that's where they came from. That's, that's where the them boy bands came from. They were all copying Boys to Men. Yeah, that's true. they're making money for Motown. Um, I didn't really know that. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. I didn't really I yeah. didn't know that. Because you had to look at the pop charts. The Boys to Men were selling like hotcakes. Oh my God! Like the huge, gigantic sales, like number one hit after number one hit. Mm. Like you couldn't escape them songs, and so they were like, "We can just white people." <laughs> That's what they always say. Um, poor, poor, poor Justin Timberlake. He always been a copy, huh? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, at the same time, you know, they have a couple of other groups because uh, Michael Bibbins for New Edition. Um, Boys the Men came to Motown from him. And so they also have some of his other artists, like Another Bad Creation was his artist. Yeah. Um, 702, mm-hmm. later on in the mid-90s, were his artists. Uh, Ollie, did you, ever, yeah, did, you ever watch wait, Cousin, wait, but- did you ever watch Cousin Skeeter, Ollie, on Nickelodeon? Yes, I did. The theme song to that is a rewritten version of 702's um, Stilo, their big hit single. And they're also singing that as well. In, in, on the the funniest show. thing about 702 is 702 came out as a subgroup to Subway. And Subway... I don't remember Subway. <laughs> well, that, was, that was the big hit with Subway featuring 702, this little game we play. Oh, and I that, remember that song. Okay. Right. But yeah. then where the hell is Subway? Subway right. just like visit, disappeared the in car, thin air. They got back in the subway car and, and took off. Shut up. 
They just disappeared and 702 became the big thing. They they went to the Rock of Eternity and got lost. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait. <laughs> wait. Are you saying they went upstairs like Homegirl and Family Matters? No, the Rock of Eternity, Shazam, Subway Car. Okay. <laughs> what if it became a Whatever became a public announcement, by the way. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, in 1990, was it five or six? Um, Kedar Massenberg becomes the president of Motown. Mm. That was 96. I think it was, it was, it was 95, I think it was. Okay. It had yeah. to be 95. Wait, it had to be after that because uh, what year was Erica Badu? Erica Badu was before. No, Erica Badu came to Motown. His, her first release was 1997. Because oh, yeah. it was, um, it was, um, um, uh-huh. God, what's the name of that damn song? Russia to destruction because you don't have no... On and on. On, on and on, yeah. yeah. So, Kedar Massenburg changes the, like, this, like, the, the image of Motown to become more of what, at the time, we didn't know what was called yet, but they were calling it Neo Soul by 2000, where it's sort of kind of a, more of a throwback, like, laid-back sound and in contrast to like the more produced, polished electronic sounds of most R&B at the time, with these artists who you know, um, you know, like a lot of like what you would call hoteps nowadays, you know, like um, your Erica Badu's, <laughs> your India Ari's, um, a couple of white ones like Remy Shand were there, and Kim from uh, who did the album Chemistry and Love what, Calls. Where is Remy Shand? Back in Canada. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> he's back in Canada. That's where he is. Can, 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 can we put him on a milk carton real quick? Lord Jesus. Okay. Wow. Um, so, like, you know, like, they're doing good during this period, and then they hit another, like, fallow period, because by, in 1998, uh, Motown is bought by Universal Music. Universal Music already has Def Jam and Def Soul, and so Motown kind of becomes redundant in this sort of yeah. kind of scheme. Yeah. Uh, yep. They try to turn them into what was called at the time Universal Motown and put like artists who don't fit their brand in there. I think Lindsay Lohan was signed to Universal Motown at one point, if I recall properly. She was. Yeah. Um, and so they're sort what? of kind of, yeah, because they, they, they expanded them into just being a label where anybody could be on it. It wasn't necessarily just Motown records or R&B. It was Universal Motown where... These are the artists who are not signed to one of the other 900,000 subsidiaries of Universal Music. And they dumped them there. Yeah. Yeah. It was run by um, Sylvia Rome by this time, who had come over from Electra. Oh, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Explain to the audience why that makes total sense. Because Sylvia Rome is the worst music executive ever. Jesus! She is. I thought you would soft-pedaled that a little bit better, but... She, she ruined... <laughs> Sylvia Rohn has ruined so many careers, it ain't even funny. <laughs> she ruined Quadrant, which I'm mad about. She... Sylvia yeah, you Rohn... Better have, you better go have somebody taste your food and start your car for you a little bit. Talk yeah, the, the views of, of Greg did that reflect the views? I'm just saying, Sylvia Rohn started a label called... Sylvia Rohn started a label called Vested in Culture for Epic that tried to uh, bring out Quadrant's second album, which was actually better than their first, and the album sat and languished in perpetuity and went nowhere, all because of Sylvia Rohn. Right. Sylvia Rohn also quietly ruined the career of Busta Rhymes, quietly ruined the career of Missy Elliott, who is now doing an EP that's whack. The EP's fine. It's not whack. It's, that's just garbage. It's not garbage. I heard, I heard it. 
Her mid-2000s stuff was not good. This is better mm-hmm. than that. But then, you know, I, and I told somebody this too, side note, Missy has never had a great album. No, she hasn't. It's always half and half. She always but yeah, have but we, we can't singles. we can't we can't go to Missy Elliott tangent, Greg. Yeah, I, I but gotta, anyway, I hush it. anyway, <laughs> anyway, go on. Uh, but yeah, so like you know they're floundering, but like after some reorganizations as of late, they took Motown out of the Universal Music banner and put them um, put them in Capital together, and so now Universal uh. Capital Records are together. They are both headquartered in that Capital Records building in, in Los Angeles, and they are putting out albums. With artists who um, include include the Migos, oh, because the um, the Migos album, quality control music has their deal through Motown, so they oh. are putting out um, the Migos' latest uh, records. Wait, whoa, whoa! So, Did you just say quality control? Yes, yeah, name of their album, their their group, their um, label. Yeah, quality. He was uh, he was on the documentary. Yeah, last Coach night. K. Yeah, he was. He was there. So yeah. Coach K is in charge of the Migos. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, who is this nigga? And, <laughs> so, and, so, and, I saw that. I'm like, who is Coach K? He's part of the family. And, <laughs> God damn. I did not know that. I don't listen to me. And the ultimate irony, the ultimate irony is that back in the old days, Motown actually had a division called Quality Control that was specifically designed to, uh, when they would have the, uh, the, the Monday morning sessions where they would basically listen to all the songs that were that had been done the previous week to what was going to come out and what was going to come out. That whole section was called quality control. So right. I, I remember. I remember. No, and and the true irony is that Migos is not any level of quality control. Lord Jesus, that's the personal opinion of Greg. I okay. Yeah, but yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> A few okay. of the artists who passed through Motown over the like during the 2000s, like a lot of these people are not there anymore. Um, Bruno Mars. Mm. Um, Did you yeah, because they he was signed to them. He was signed to them, and they dropped him. They dropped him. Uh, Maya was there for a hot second. Mm. Dave Hollister. Uh, Yummy Bing Bingham, who never popped off. She actually, she never really popped, but her her father is Dinky Bingham, the famous producer. Um, Babyface was there for a hot second. I think he might still be there. I think it's his deal with his Tony Braxton album, wherever that was, was there. I think. Mm. I'm not certain. I'll look it up right quick, make sure I don't take it. Interesting. That. This is, wow, this is crazy. Interesting. This is Love, mm. Marriage, and Divorce. Which, mm. uh, yep, Love, Marriage, and Divorce was on Motown. The Tony Braxton and Babyface album. That was actually quite successful. Yeah. Uh, one person who is on Motown now is Neo. He is actually the vice president of Motown. Yuck. <laughs> really? Yes. Mm. Yep. Interesting, interesting side note to that. Neo is was on episode one of that new show called Sherman's Showcase. Yep. As a character. Uh, Fonte and Zoe. From from you remember from our old stomping ground yeah. wrote that, yeah, they wrote that song for him. Time loop. Zoe and uh, Tay wrote that. But anyway, mm. so uh, yeah, Fonte, um, what, um, Neo is Neo's actually talented. Yeah, he is. He, he actually, actually really is talented. He's very talented. Actually, I like his voice. He's pretty good. He just never really had 
a whole lot of great material. He started off good with Sats or with a uh, So Sick of Love songs yeah. on the radio. That was a nice little start for him, but then he kind of fizzled slowly, but he's always been a great voice. Right. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead but on. The, the, wait, go ahead, let's use that and then we'll move um, to the next section. I was going to say, the nature of what's happened with the recording business in the mid-2000s on where things became decentralized as you started to see... Uh, the big labels closing their own studios and then big studios themselves starting to close as, as things became decentralized. The artists could start doing things in their own bedrooms and their own garages and stuff like that. And, and bypassing the usual uh, uh, um, ways of getting a rip out. It technically yeah. rendered it's rendered both. I'm not going to say there'll never be another one like that, but you know, it's the, labels don't it's, have A and R departments anymore. There's no artist development. They just you are don't. assigned if you already have an album, a single out as a hit. Mm-hmm. And they assume that you already yep, know you how can, to handle that. Exactly. That, they, that's exa- exactly. It. So it's just interesting to see how that has has, has has come to that point. I mean, Motown still makes a gang of money off of licensing. Yes. I, I, I hear commercials, I hear things like, I, 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 I it's, it's just, that's really technically for hardcore from the 80s, 84, 85 on, I would dare say, you know, uh, they make more money from the old shit than the new the, shit. Yeah, at least, at least half of the revenue was coming from, from stuff that had been done like 10 years before. I could, I could wow. At least that. And, I, and, I'm be, and, I'm being, and I'm being generous with that. Right. All right. I will, let's move ahead on to the playlist. Hit the playlist. Showtime. 